Okay, so we are live on another edition of the Edlo podcast. Um, subscribe. I'm supposed to say that at the beginning and end of every one of these. So that's what a podcaster told me. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, but we are here today again with round two. You know, uh, Matthew L. Harris, PhD. When I first contacted him, I there were two topics I really wanted to talk with him about. The first being the uh, priesthood and temple ban for uh, black members of the church. And then also um, Ezra Taft Benson, who he's written two books, uh, well, many books on both the topics. Uh, but then as soon as I got his books and started reading them and I kind of started thinking about questions, I said, there is no way I'm going to get this done in one podcast. <laughs> there was just so much that I was curious about. And then also, um, just the wealth of, of knowledge that you have is so vast compared to so many other people. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll share this story real quick too, before we get into it. I actually became interested in this topic. Today, we're going to be speaking about Ezra Taft Benson and his, his role in shifting the, I guess, the political landscape of uh, members of the church to the right by another scholar um, by the name of Patrick Mason, who I knew I was a young missionary on Notre Dame campus. He was serving at Notre Dame. He was my, my ward mission leader, and we would have all sorts of deep doctrinal discussions. And he told me he wanted to write a book on this very topic. And I kept sending him emails years for years saying, did you write the book? Did you write the book? Did you write the book? And he's like, no, no, I never wrote that. I didn't write it. I didn't write it. And then I had him on the podcast. And then I, he's like, there's another guy who wrote it. And I was like, oh, man. And so you're here now and you're on my podcast and I've read the book. I've read uh, I haven't finished it. I've, I read most of it and I, I'm going to finish it. I, was there was this a topic that you've always been interested in? What what caused you to kind of really dig deep into this? Well, I guess there's a, a few few reasons. One of the big reasons is, of course, he was a larger-than-life church figure for years. He was not just an influential church leader, but he was also a government uh, figure. He served in the Eisenhower cabinet as the Secretary of Agriculture. So those twin roles, I think, attracted me to Benson because he was just significant. He was also a presidential candidate in the 1960s. So Politically, he was influential in the conservative movement. Personally, I was interested because um, some of my family members, my father's siblings, were members of the John Birch Society in Arizona. And so mm. I remember learning about the Birch Society. It's a, a very extreme anti-communist organization. And uh, Elder Benson, of course, was influential in the Birch Society, as was his good friend, uh, Cleon Skousen. So my father never joined. Um, his siblings tried to get him to join, but he never did for whatever reason. And so, but my aunt held Birch Society meetings in her home in Heber, Arizona for many years. Oh, and I didn't know this until I went to her funeral. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> Why didn't I know this? I would have interviewed her. Yeah. Anyway, and then the other reason is, is that Ezra Depp Benson was the president when I went on my mission. And so, oh, okay. and we had, when I was growing up as a youth, my father put Ezra Depp Benson pictures around our house, little quotes of his on the refrigerator. So, and 
as you know, <laughs> my my siblings and I as teenagers, we were good kids, but you know, we're still kids, right? Teenagers. And so my father would often say, you know, what would President Benson do? Oh man. Yeah. And my my younger brother, who's kind of irreverent at times, but a good kid, but he said he said something very irreverently one day. He said, Dad, if President Benson got a mohawk, would you allow me to get a mohawk? <laughs> very nice. So, so President Benson was the litmus test in our home about what was all holy and pure. Nice. So I want to ask you, too, um, because this came up in some of my personal discussions after uh, and I don't know quite how it came up. We must have had a, a bit of a discussion about extremism in our last podcast, which I thought uh, the, one of the reasons why I love your podcast, the the one we did uh, on the temple, priesthood and temple ban was the wide range of responses I got. And I knew we had hit. Um, I knew that we had hit something important because you know, I think personally, the the ones that get the conversations that are the most uh, controversial are often the most important ones, because it means it's something you're dealing with important, because if it wasn't important, you wouldn't argue about it. Right. And so but um, the, the thing I found so interesting was people kind of saying, well, what do you mean by extremism? You know, just because we are we believe these conservative principles doesn't make us extreme. So, so from you, you know, you mentioned the John Birch Society was a right, an extreme right anti-communist group. What do you think, as someone who studied this, makes something extreme or ultra conservative? That's a great question, and I think it's it needs to be asked. So, whoever asked that or posed that question to you, Josh, kudos to them. Mm -hmm. So. I want to give you just a broader response to that because it deserves a broader response and which is that elder benson did not become an extremist overnight it was something that he morphed into for example in 1948 he had considered running as the secretary of agriculture he was going to be in thomas dewey's uh, cabinet if the new york moderate republican new york governor won the 48 election well, it turns out he didn't. Harry Truman won. But um, Benson, who has always been conservative, but he he considered Dewey just this incredible politician. And Dewey was a very moderate Republican governor from New York. And also Benson supported another moderate person, Republican, a guy named Nelson Rockefeller. And so Benson has a history of supporting moderate candidates. And he's in the uh, cabinet of a moderate president, Dwight Eisenhower. So he's around moderates a lot. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, is that when he's in um, Washington, D.C., taking a, a leave of absence from his apostle duties from 1953 to 1961, I mean, he still does some apostle things, you know, um, if he had to go to speak to some farmer's convention in Europe and he had a free day off on Sunday, President McKay might give him an assignment to visit the Saints in Liverpool or something. Mm -hmm. But for mm -hmm. the most part, he was just keeping tabs of what the brethren were doing in Salt Lake from a distance. They would send him um, the meeting minutes of their Thursday temple meetings, for example. Mm -hmm. But for all intents and purposes, his job from 
from 53 to 61 was to stay focused on the nation's farming affairs and to serve the president the best way that he could. Mm -hmm. So he's in a moderate uh, cabinet and he is swept up in anti-communism fervor in the nation's capital. This is a time of Joseph McCarthy and McCarthyism that some of your listeners might be aware of. Who made yeah, that real quick on, on that, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. give, give me the dates of when McCarthyism was really strong. I know it was in the 50s, but is there a certain time? Early 50s, early 50s. Okay. Um, and when Benson becomes the, when he's sworn in as the cabinet secretary in 53, McCarthy is still doing his thing. And it wasn't until a, a handful of months later when he accuses the U.S., the military, of being infiltrated by communists. And that's where they put the Army McCarthy hearings on TV and they expose him for the fraud that he was. Mm. And anyway, uh, Benson was, was swept up with McCarthy and thought he was speaking the truth. And Eisenhower, mm. the exact opposite. Eisenhower hated him. Mm. Anyway, um, Benson also was a was influenced by J. Reuben Clark, the influential first presidency counselor, who is very extreme. When I say extreme, I mean believes in conspiracy theories, like the United Nations is communist. The civil mm -hmm. rights movement has been fomented by communists. Martin Luther King's a secret red. Those those are very extreme positions. Mm -hmm. And Benson becomes so extreme with these very fringy views that the government is fluoridating the water to subvert public health. That's an extreme position. And I should define extreme. Uh, so extreme would mean that the mainstream conservative movement of which Benson was certainly a part does not agree with any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So the most influential Republican conservative in the early 60s would have been Barry Goldwater. Yeah. And he does not think that Dr. King's a communist. He does not think the United Nations is you know, uh, run by commies. He does not think that the government's attempt to fluoridate water is a secret plan to subvert public health. Mm -hmm. And Barry Goldwater opposes civil rights like some other mainstream um, Republicans do. But it's not because he thinks that communists have infiltrated the party. That's not it at all. For him, it's a federal reason. He thinks that if the federal government is is overseeing a, a civil rights program, that means that you're going to have to have a federal bureaucracy enforce it. Mm. And Goldwater thought, nah, -uh. the government's already too big and bloated. That's let's not go there. Let's focus on civil rights at home. Let's let states handle it. And of course, you know, that, <laughs> that's what a lot of states rights people said, mm -hmm. uh, because let the states handle it. But the problem is, is that when you're in the South, you've got the Ku Klux Klan, you know, sheriff. He's not going to handle anything dealing with the civil rights. So right. that's why the feds get involved in civil rights. Anyway. So let me just conclude the point here that so Benson sort of evolves into his radical position when he meets the Burt Society people. The seeds have been planted when he was in government in Washington, D.C., when he when he was associating with J. Edgar Hoover, who's another extremist, the longstanding FBI director. Uh, J. Reuben Clark was his main contact in church leadership, who was very extreme. Clark was an anti-Semite, didn't like Jews and kept that, tried to keep it from President McKay, who did not have that position at all or President Grant, another president that Clark served under. So Benson was hanging around extremist people. And um, in the 1960s, when he started to morph into, you take more of the Birch Society position after he met Robert Welch in um, 1962, after he left government services when he first met Welch, 
he became um, radicalized uh, by the Birch Society, so much so that Benson called, he, he adopted the Birch line that President Eisenhower was a communist stooge, which is an extraordinary thing to say when here's a man who just served under him for you know two terms or eight years, and you, you've somehow been persuaded to believe that your former boss is a communist. I mean, that's just crazy. Right. And then the other thing I would say is that when Barry Goldwater gets drubbed in the 1964 presidential election, Republicans recognize that they have to change uh, suit on civil rights. The country is moving towards civil rights and the party opposed it. The platform opposed it in 64, in spite of George Romney, a moderate Mormon governor who supports civil rights, Richard Nixon, Nelson Rockefeller. So by 68, they learn their lesson and uh, the Republican Party decides to support civil rights in 68. And for Benson, that was just way too far. And so he bolts the party. He's going to form his own, be a part of a third party ticket. So that's the best evidence I can give you that his views were so out of the mainstream with the Republican Party, he's going to bolt for a third party. And the last thing I'll say is, is that he's got colleagues in church leadership like Hubie Brown, who routinely refer to him as an extremist in private correspondence. They'll mm -hmm. talk about, you know, he, he's got these extreme positions. His party doesn't even hold them. I mean, Brown will not hold back in private in critiquing Benson. And frankly, Benson won't hold back either in critiquing Brown, whom he called a socialist. Sure. Sure. Well, okay. So, so Hubie Brown, known Democrat, Benson, extreme conservative. So that sounds like that was something that was kind of a, they were going at it most of their apostleship. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. They, 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 um, they used to have a good relationship. Uh, of course, <clears throat> Hubie wasn't called into the Quorum of the Twelve until 1958 when he was an older man, he was 70 years old when he was called in in 58. He was called in as an assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve in 53. And the assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve will later morph into the first Quorum of the Seventy. He'll do away with that assistant Quorum. And of course, Elder Benson was predates him in the apostleship. He was called into the Quorum of the Twelve in 1943. And so even though Hugh B is older than, than Ezra Taft, um, Elder Benson ranked him, was over him in seniority. And they had a good relationship. Ezra Taft Benson visited Europe after the close of the Second World War and Brown was the mission president there. And so they got to know each other there and they wrote cordial letters to each other and all of that. But what happened was, is that Brown had always been a Democrat ever since he came from Canada to the United States in the 1920s to practice law in uh, Salt Lake. He was um, born in the Salt Lake Territory in the late 19th century, but then when he was, I think, 13 or 14, he moved to Canada, Western Canada, where he, that, those are his formative years. So basically his teenage years were in Western Canada. And anyway, he came back um, to the States to practice law in the 1920s. And as he um, moved back with his family, he thought to himself, you know, I got to declare a party. What am I going to be, Democrat or Republican? And he talked to Heber J. Grant. He talked to Anthony Ivins, President Grant's counselor in the first presidency. And he talked to one of the church's most impressive um, intellectuals, a guy named B.H. Roberts. 
All three of those men were ardent Democrats. Mm -hmm. And Heber J. Grant and Ivins and Roberts, they said, you know, if you care about the nation's wealth, then you should be a Republican. If you care about people, particularly poor people, then you should be a Democrat. Hmm. And Hugh Brown was just smitten by this sort of logic. And what's interesting is about a decade and a half later, Grant will change positions. He, he, he just sort of falls out of favor with Franklin Roosevelt, uh, who's a Democrat, of course. And he basically says, I'm not going to support the Democrats anymore. And Brown basically corrects him. How dare you? You're, you're showing your disloyalty. So here's Brown reproving the church president for changing his mind politically. Hmm. But anyway, um, he, he thought Roosevelt was just dishonest. It wasn't his politics necessarily. He just thought that he wasn't as honest in all of his dealings. So anyway, um, Brown's a longstanding Democrat and Brown started to recognize that Benson was becoming more radical as he, during his second term in Washington, DC. And for example, in 1958, Benson gave a sermon in general conference and in the sermon, he gave this very cryptic remark that there are traitors in the U.S. government. They're in all branches of government. And he didn't mention any names. You know, here's Brown, like, scratching his head thinking, what? You know, you're, you're mentioning that there are commies everywhere in government. Well, this is, this is McCarthy's influence on Benson. Mm. And, and then when he comes back to Salt Lake and resumes his duties in the twelve in January of 1961, it's a few months later where Benson meets Robert Welch, the president of the John Burt Society. I should say just a quick um, overview of that organization for your audience. It emerged in 1958 um, by Robert Welch, who made millions of dollars in the candy business. So sugar daddies and milk duds, I think, and a few of those other all the, all, the, all the ones that all the dentists hate. <laughs> all the ones that the dentists hate, yeah. <laughs> and anyway, he made his millions and decided to retire early. And his new cause became fighting communism. Mm. And frankly, he recognized he could make money off of it. And sure. so he wrote this book called The Politician in 1958. It was a series of essays about the current state of the government, which would have been Eisenhower. Mm -hmm. And it's in those secret essays where Welch spells out this idea that Ike is a communist. He's always been a communist, he says. And he says that his secretary of state, John Foster Dulles, is a communist. And his CIA director, uh, John Foster's brother, Alan Dulles, is also a commie. Dwight Eisenhower's close confidant and brother, Milton Eisenhower, is a commie. So he names four commie, communist people in the cabinet and Benson's smitten by this stuff. Mm -hmm. And he believes it, which is astonishing to think because here's a man who served during World War II and spent his entire adult life fighting against communism. And now he's being called a communist and Benson buys into it lock, stock and barrel. And maybe a question should be asked, you know, why would Welch do this? Um, th there's always the publicity, there's always the money involved. Yeah, that was actually the question I was thinking. I was like, "What? Well, where did this come from? Yeah, maybe we'll answer two questions. Why does Welch believe it? And why does Benson believe it? Right, right. Um, first one is Welch. Welch is upset, like a lot of other conservatives of the era, that 
that Eisenhower does not roll back the New Deal. Mm-hmm. Now, just a, a quick history 101 lesson for your, your listeners here. Franklin Roosevelt creates the welfare state. And he, he um, Social Security comes of age. The government had never gotten involved in anything like Social Security. If you were old or you had health issues, it was just your family, your church, your charity that would take care of you. And now Franklin Roosevelt saying, you know, the government has this new program that's going to help out the aged and the infirm and, and also the disabled. That, that was so radical to people. And so um, what happened was, is that Eisenhower, of course, is not stupid. And he recognized that once you get a popular program in place, and by this point, the program had been around for 20 years when Eisenhower became the president. It was proposed in the in the uh, mid 30s during uh, Franklin Roosevelt's, I guess, towards the end of his first term and into his second term. Anyway, once you get a popular program that especially poor people and uh, in, in elderly come to rely on, it's going to be hard to cut it. And Ike re- recognizes right away that he can't cut it. He promised that he would cut it and other programs, liberal programs, but he realized he couldn't do it. And so. Welch was angry with him because he had promised to cut these liberal programs and just didn't do it. Mm. And he rolled back some of them, but kept a lot of them. And Barry Goldwater, the the great conservative senator from Arizona, he said he called the New Deal a, how do you say, he called it a, the dime store New Deal. That it wasn't as robust as Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, but it was still a New Deal. So Mm. they felt betrayed by their own party bearer. And there were a lot of people, Ezra Taft included, who did not vote for Dwight Eisenhower. Ezra Taft voted for the most conservative person in the party at the time. That is his cousin, Robert Taft, Hmm. the great uh, senator from Ohio, very conservative, very influential. And obviously this wartime general was more popular than this conservative, you know, no name senator. So, but anyway, any conservative in the early 50s would have thrown their hat behind Robert Taft, not Dwight Eisenhower. But Dwight Eisenhower, as you know, you build coalitions and he was able to get moderate independent um, supporters and also some conservative Democrats. Mm. So Robert mm-hmm. Taft, the quintessential conservative, just didn't have the support. Anyway, so uh, Welch felt betrayed by that and some other things, but that's principally it. And the real question is, is Benson. Why would Benson go for this? Because Benson knows darn well that the president's not a communist. He knows his heart. He considered him a good friend. He often praised him in uh, private correspondence to Latter-day Saints who, who asked, you know, what's it like serving with General Eisenhower? Um, in 1960, Ezra Taft Benson uh, praised the president in general conference. Ezra Taft Benson wrote these tender, really heartfelt letters to John Foster Dulles, this very conservative Protestant Christian man who was the Secretary of State. And, you know, they, they had a very healthy affection uh, for one another. In fact, John Foster Dulles and Ezra Taft were two of the most religious people in the cabinet. Hmm. And John Foster Dulles and Ezra Taft were the two who prayed the most before cabinet meetings. Hmm. And so Taft knows that, um, I'm calling him by the name that his church colleagues called him in off the record private, but uh, Taft, or I'll call him Elder Benson, I guess. But Elder Benson knows that the John Foster's not a commie. He knows that. Mm-hmm. So why why would he do this? And there's a 
the, the big reason is, is that when Ezra Taft was called into the cabinet, he was called in to cut farm subsidies that Dwight Eisenhower was beholden to conservatives when he was elected in, in 52. And they wanted him to roll back both the New Deal and the, and the Fair Deal. So the Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman farm programs. They were giving, the government was giving too much money to farmers. And some of these free marketers, conservatives didn't like that. And so Eisenhower listened to them and he got a recommendation from uh, Utah Senator Arthur Watkins, who was part of the Joseph McCarthy prosecution on TV. Senator Watkins from Utah played a big role in bringing down McCarthy. And then Robert Taft, as a Taft's, I think, third cousin. They both recommended this no-name farm boy from Idaho to Eisenhower. He's conservative. He'll roll back those farm subsidies. He'll do what you want. And so, of course, Eisenhower had to get permission from President McKay that so Elder Benson could take a leave of absence from his duties. And when Ezra Taft Benson, um, in November of 52, went to the Commodore Hotel in New York City, which is where Eisenhower's headquarters were, that's where Benson told him for the first time, I mean, why do you want me? I didn't even vote for you. I voted for my cousin, Robert Taft, who's far more conservative than you. And General Eisenhower said, he laughed and he said, I wouldn't expect you to vote for anybody different, you know, blood's thicker than water. But he said, can you roll back the farm program? That's what I need you to do. And of course, Elder Benson being the strident conservative that he was, he said he, he could. Anyway, this is a long answer of, to, to answer your question, which is that when Elder Benson starts to roll back these farm programs, farmers are angry. They show up at public events. They throw eggs at him. They throw shoes at him. They curse at him. I mean, Elder Benson's a proud man. He's, he's an apostle in his church. He's not used to having people throw things at him and cuss him out. There's a woman from Logan, Utah, who writes J. Reuben Clark, who this very influential first presidency counselor, and also a very, um, someone that Benson looked up to, as did a number of other apostles. Anyway, this woman from Logan, Utah, she said, Dear President Clark, my husband and I run a farm. If Elder Benson's farm policies go through, we will lose everything. How can we support him in his church calling, but oppose him in his government calling? Where is that line drawn? And I remember reading this letter and I thought, man, I can't wait to see the response. Sure, sure. <laughs> it's a real thing. I mean, you're hitting somebody's domestic economy, your, your food, your, the way you make your living. And, and uh, President Clark wrote back and he said, you know, um, what Benson does and what Elder Benson does in Washington, D.C. is what he does. What he does here in Salt Lake for the church is what he does. So he's trying to keep this strict separation. He doesn't sure. answer the woman's call, question, really. Mm -hmm. but in private, President Clark, um, I'm, I'm going to be frank, so forgive me. But in private, President Clark writes in a, in a note to himself. He's like, Benson's a disaster. I mean, his mm -hmm. policies are terrible. They're hurting. Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to stick up for Elder Benson for a moment. He's just doing what the president wants him to do. Right, right. Okay, here's well, the well, what's interesting about that, though, isn't Jay Rubin Clark a fairly conservative guy? Very conservative. So, so it's surprising that would think, yeah, it's surprising that he would think that rolling back farm subsidies was such a disaster. He's, he's saying that in the context of everybody complaining. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, so he's there. He's saying this is a disaster that he's serving in this political role and also as an apostle. 
that that in there, that was a question I had too. You, I want you to stay on where you're going, but that is I've never heard of that happening in any other context where someone takes kind of a leave of absence as being an apostle, still kind of an apostle, but not really. Had that happened before? Yeah, Reed Smoot in the early 20th century. Oh, okay. He was an apostle and he was being sworn in in 1904 and five, I think. And the, the Senate, they were, of course, skewering him for polygamy. Mm. But anyway, uh, so Benson is getting skewered. And it was so bad that David O. McKay flew out before the end of the first term. And he said to the president, he said, uh, Mr. President, this is David O. saying to the Eisenhower, we, we, it's, it's time to call him home. We'll, we'll take him back. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't have to keep him on in your cabinet for a second term. And David O. flew out because Republicans, he's a disaster. Ike, if you're going to run again for a second term, you got to drop him. This guy is the most polarizing person in your cabinet. I'm defending mm-hmm. Benson a little bit here because, again, Benson is only doing what the president wants him to do. But Benson is not he's not a he's not a um, coalition builder. He's an ideologue. Mm -hmm. And if you're an ideologue in in a very contentious political scheme like, you know, presidential cabinet, you're not going to survive very well. Mm -hmm. And so when I say ideologue, what I mean by that is he decides everything on principle. On the one hand, that sounds good. But on the other hand, if you're trying to get something passed and and people to support, you've got to compromise and scratch their back. They scratch yours. That's how log rolling works in politics. Benson's not a log roller. He'll do what he thinks is right. It's very black and white. And when um, a Texas governor in 1953, um, they had a drought in Texas and Benson went to visit and farmers were, of course, suffering. And and the farmers, including the governor, they're looking for Benson to say, we're going to give you government aid. And instead, Benson's line is, we'll pray for rain. The farmers are like, you're kidding. Mm-hmm. You're gonna pray for rain. That's all you got. And so some of the people around Benson in his own cabinet, they said that he they said kind of jokingly, but they said he follows two Smiths and two Smiths only: Joseph Smith and Adam Smith, <laughs> the great you know laissez-faire economist yeah. you know in the 18th century. Government, keep your hands off. So anyway, um, here's the the answer to your question with all of that context. And the answer is. Eisenhower leaves Benson to hang. People are angry at him. They're skewering him in newspapers and in magazines. They're throwing eggs at him. They're calling, they're cursing at him. And Ike does not come to his aid and say, hey, if you want to be mad at somebody, get mad at me. Mm-hmm. He leaves Benson to just hang. It got so bad that, that Ike told uh, President McKay, no, we'll keep him on for a second term. And so that was good. But it was so demoralizing for Benson, he he almost quit. And he was close friends with President McKay's secretary, a woman named Claire Middlemas. And um, I found this great letter in the Eisenhower papers Hmm. um, that Benson wrote to Claire Middlemas at this time. This would have been just as the second term is taking off, the second election in 1956. And Benson said to Claire Middlemas, his confidant, he said, dear sister Middlemas, he said, I'm, I'm seriously thinking about coming home, but I'm not sure what to do. The president wants me to stay, but I can't take this any longer, meaning the criticism. Would you put my name on the prayer roll? I need all the prayers I can get from the saints. Your faithful brother, Ezra Taft. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of state of mind that he's in. And uh, he stays on for a second term. And it got so bad that Richard Nixon, when he decided to run in 1960, so Nixon's the vice president, a man that knows Benson well, it got so bad with in terms of Benson being so polarizing with his farm views, it sort of overshadowed everything else in the Eisenhower cabinet. Um, got so bad that Nixon told Eisenhower, I don't want this guy campaigning for me. I don't want him anywhere near my campaign. Can you send him over to Europe so that when I go visit the Midwest and try to drum up farm support that your polarizing secretary is nowhere in the scene? And Eisenhower, who didn't really like Nixon, did concede that point. And so that was the context for one of uh, Benson's European visits in the late 50s is get him out of the country so uh, Dick Nixon could um, do his thing. So anyway... That's why Benson, Benson's angry. He's got a chip on his shoulder when he leaves the the cabinet because Ike has left him out there to just fall on the sword. And he didn't think that was right. Ike could have come to him and defended him and he didn't. There were some other issues too with, I don't know if we need to go into them, but there were some other issues in the cabinet that caused friction between the two. Mm -hmm. And the big thing though is, is that when, when um, it got back to the president, that Benson, his former secretary, had aligned himself with the most extreme anti-communist organization in the country, the same organization, the Birchers, calling Ike a commie. I mean, that, that, was, a, that was a line that Ike could never forgive. Mm. Mm. And Eisenhower wrote, let me back up just a quick second. The five-year anniversary of the Eisenhower, of the Burt Society, was in 19... 19- I think it was what, 63, 61. And Benson spoke at the anniversary in Los Angeles. And he basically, he said, without saying it, he said that Eisenhower is a commie in this speech. He didn't use his name, but everybody in the audience knew that he was referring to his former boss. And after the speech was over, so this would have been 63, 63. After the speech was over, a reporter from, the New York Times came up to Ezra Taft and said, were you referring to President Eisenhower? Do you really think he's a communist? And Benson did not say anything. And the reporter, of course, took that as tacit agreement with the Birchers that the president was a commie. So the next day, the byline read, Benson won't rebut statement that Ike is a red. That was the byline in the New York Times. And of course, that embarrassed the brethren in Salt Lake. It made LDS politicians like Ralph Harding, a Democratic congressman from Idaho, made him furious that here's a senior apostle calling a respected general, you know, a commie. So anyway, they went downhill from there and Benson became radicalized by his association with the Birch Society. And it's a, um, as my book talks about, it's, it's an association that he had never abdicated up until the day he died in 1994. Wow. You know, okay, so I have to ask, uh, and I think I know the answer to this, but I, I'm not, a, I, I don't know a lot about President Eisenhower. Is there any chance he was? Is there any chance he was an actual communist or that he was working in the Communist Party? Hell no. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. No. In fact, let me, let me, let me just answer the best way that I can. Um, when, so Robert Welch's, he made this secret allegation in 1958 in this book called The Politician. And of course, The Politician refers to Eisenhower. And 
it's such an explosive claim that Welch tells the people there. There are like 12 people who were at his house that day when he, you know, shares this with them. And he says, you can't share this manuscript with anybody because this could ruin me politically if this gets out. In other words, Welch recognized that conservatives would not go along with this. This is so far out there, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. keep in mind that these radical ideas, radical like Welch is trying to be part of the mainstream. He wants to influence Republican Party politics. Sure. And that's another whole story. What do these mainstream guys do with the extremist fringes who come into their party? Anyway, the book leaks in 1961. And that's where the world first learns about this Welch guy calling the former president a communist. Benson reads it after it leaks. And he sends each member um, of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles the book in a letter. So he buys the book for them, each of them. And he also buys three books of the politician for the church history archives. And I, I know this because I, I have all the receipts. Yeah. <laughs> And for my research into the Birch archives. Anyway, so he tells the brethren, each of the 15 or the other 14, he tells them, he says, he sends them the same form letter. And he said, you have to read this book. It will change your life. It'll change the way you view politics. It'll change the way you view everything. And most of the brethren just like roll their eyes like they read it because they recognize. Now, these are all conservatives, except for Hugh Brown and Henry Moyle who was the first presidency counselor in, at the time. This would have been the summer of 63, July of 1963. Henry Moyle will die like five months later in October of 63. So he's still alive. So there's two Democrats in the highest echelons of church leadership at this time. Mm -hmm. And anyway, the rest are Republicans. And so they read this letter and the two Democrats are like furious, Brown and Moyle. They're like, to say they're furious is just an understatement. Joseph Fielding Smith just like rolls his eyes like, jeez. Oh, I mean, he's conservative, but he recognizes this conspiracy stuff that's just nonsense. Anyway, um, Hugh Brown and Henry Moyle, they both write these just really frank letters to Elder Benson. And they both basically say the same thing. How could you be so disloyal to your former boss? He stood up for you. He invited you back for a second term. He considered you a friend and you him. How could you do this? In other words, nobody in their sane mind would think he was a communist. And um, Henry Moyle, who was a, a lawyer blustery type, I mean, a lot made millions in the oil business. I mean, he was anybody in church headquarters. They knew him as a sort of a big ego. And he, I guess we would say he's one of those guys that didn't have a filter. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so he calls in Benson and he said, Taft? I can't, he wrote him a letter, then he called him in. He said, Taft, I can't believe you did this. I'm gonna take you off. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna remove you uh, from some church committees. That's what he tells Benson. I'm gonna remove you from some church committees, sort of a little penalty. And Benson has this look of like horror over his head because you know, church salaries in those days aren't what they are today. Not that they're making millions today, of course, but they're making more today as a church officer than they were back then. And Taft has this look of horror, like, oh, my goodness, he's going to take me off some of my, my church committees, which don't pay anything. But will he take me off my board committees, too, which do pay something? These are mm. these are board of director committees from church-owned properties. Mm. And Moyle was the church's financial guy <laughs> until he spent the church's money and got his 
got everybody bankrupt. But anyway, um, but Moyle could sense that Taft was was kind of concerned about losing some of his income from these board committees. And he said, no, 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 don't worry. I'll still keep you on the boards. But what he was saying is you're on thin ice. Right. Carefully. And Brown was by this point, they had a falling out. Um, Brown was a liberal Democrat. Um, Henry Moyle was more conservative in his views, but definitely Brown was a liberal Democrat. He was a ardent new dealer. In fact, he ran for unsuccessfully. He ran for a Utah Senate position in the 1930s as a as a new dealer. So everything about Franklin Roosevelt, he loved. In fact, Brown wrote in his diary, he said, I never went to Washington, D.C. without ever calling on the president. We became close. Hmm. I don't know if that's true. (laughs) Brown would sometimes embellish stories, but he had great affection for Franklin Roosevelt. Anyway, um, so he wrote in his letter to Elder Benson, he said, you know, how could you? You're being disloyal. And he said, your extremism is harming the church. I mean, he just calls it right out. Your extremism is harming the church. Eisenhower is not a communist and you know it. And nor is his cabinet or other members of the cabinet. And um, Elder Benson wrote him back like two days later, an equally frank letter. And he said, basically called President Brown socialist. And he said, you're the one that's harming the church and your socialist views. He said, I've tried to be patient with you as you undermine my, my authority um, by the speeches that you give. And what Benson was referring to was Brown was frequently giving speeches to Latter-day Saints, and he would say stuff like, beware of the extremists. He would never call Benson by name, but everybody knew darn well he's talking about Benson and Cleon Scouton. So he'd say, mm-hmm. beware of the extremists who cloak themselves in patriotic organizations under the guise of fighting communism. So he never talks about the Burt Society in public, but that's that's what he's talking That's what he's talking about. So anyway, they have, they exchange about six letters back and forth over a period of, I think, a month and a half from July 1963 into late October. And they're both, they're just trading insults and barbs. It's really awful. And Reed Benson, Ezra's um, son and confidant, was a, an employee of the Burt Society. And Reed was going around giving talks denigrating President Brown. He would say stuff like that frothing at the mouth Democrat who likes Martin King, who supports civil rights. I mean, he's he's bad mouthing a church officer in public to Latter-day Saints. And and of course, some of these Latter-day Saints, you know, they would write President Brown. You know, I went to a fireside last night with Elder Benson's son, Reed. This is what he said about you. I can't believe this. Mm. And so after receiving several of these letters, Hugh B. in the first presidency, they called in Reed Benson to, you know, call him on the carpet. You are not to denigrate the Lord's anointed in public like this. And so Reed gets chastised um, for speaking ill of President Brown. Hmm. Wow. There's, you know, I want to say something that's, I think, really important. And a lot of Latter-day Saints don't know this. And in order to understand Elder Benson's influence, especially his right-wing influence, is that it's important to understand that Utah has supported Democratic candidates for years. Utah Mm -hmm. supported Franklin Roosevelt for all four terms of his presidency. 
He was elected in 1931, and he died in office during his fourth term in 1945. 13 years. Utah's kept sending him back. Even, even at the end when President Grant lost his affection for Roosevelt and told Utahns not to support him, they did it anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Utahns supported the, the most liberal president in the history of this country, a guy named Lyndon Johnson. He put FDR to shame in terms of his liberal politics. FDR took the New Deal and put it on steroids. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Medicaid and Medicare and food stamps and Head Start and uh, poverty programs, all of these programs that we recognize today that are still with us, they're Lyndon Johnson programs. Utahns support the Great Society in the 1960s. And it's not until Richard Nixon where you start to see a shift in the electoral map in Utah and also in state politics too. And so, you know, uh, so Elder Benson is, is giving all of these sermons in, and Cleon Skousen too, the most influential non-general authority, arguably even more so than Hugh Nibley. And between Skousen and Benson just inundating the saints with this right-wing really extremist message, I mean, the saints in Southern California, Arizona, Idaho, and Utah are just, you know, they're buying into this. And it creates a friction in the church leadership because the brethren, most of them are conservative Republicans, but they're not extremists. They don't think, you know, they don't hold Elder Benson's views about the UN, civil rights, Dr. King being a commie, all of that. They don't agree with that. But in terms of states' rights and small government and things like that, most brethren would support those traditional views. Hmm. So I wanted to I wanted to bring up some of that stuff, and we, we'll go over some of the. You mentioned the transition. Uh, you know, he, the, not a transition, but more of the kind of the the uh, extremism that he kind of later in life, and it seems like kind of started when he took that trip to Europe after the war, which you mentioned in the book. But there's something with what you've been talking about, because you've been talking a lot about Dr. King and communists and and the McCarthy era. And there was something in your book where you, you talk about how President Benson had issues with government bureaucrats, special interest groups, and he didn't like dealing with what you refer to as the blacks, Jews, commies, and ultra liberals, and felt their influence was satanic and in and inordinately strong, and he became deeply impressed with the revelations of the McCarthy era. And also that you mentioned that he felt God called him to push American ideals. Can you kind of clarify a little bit what you meant by I mean that seems it's I'm sure that's a broad question, but what exactly did you mean by he felt that the the influences of the blacks, Jews, commies, ultra liberals were satanic and inordinately strong? Well, that's a quote from the church historian Leonard Arrington, who said that. Well, that was, those weren't those were not my words, although oh. I don't disagree with them. Right. And okay. so I think it's important to recognize where Benson's from, a little tiny town in Utah or Idaho, Whitney, Idaho, and he's never been around black people before his perceptions of black people are formed like most people in utah and idaho and these small little towns who've never been around um, a black population they're formed on tv you know whether it's racist crackershers you get from movies uh to the news the nightly news and of course um the church has some very strong feelings about people of african descent so sure. much so that you know they bear a biblical curse and they made all kinds of mistakes in the pre-earth life 
So between popular culture and church theology, this is what's shaping their views of black people. And of course, you know, when you get to know black people and or or a gay person or anybody, you, your views change a little bit because you're not as easy to accept some of those caricatures. Anyway, Benson will meet and see and, and be among black people for the first time when he's in Washington, DC. And it makes him profoundly uncomfortable. Mm. He'll be around Jewish people for the first time. It'll make him profoundly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And in 1957, this is this what I'm most of what I'm telling you today is in this book. Sure. But and and your readers can see the footnotes and the sources. So that's really important. I think you know, source material is so critical to historians. So if anybody sure. your listeners, you know, what's Dr. Harris's support or Matt's support? You know, that's really critical. Get the book, look at my notes. Yeah, and I, and I got to second that and say, the books that I have are extensive in notes. I mean, there's nothing in here. I, I mean, I have, you know, I, I, I have a degree in government. I, I'm a, a Juris Doctorate. I'm an attorney. So I read a lot and I, it's all about your authority. When you're teaching, when you're teaching law or you're, you're in front of a judge, it's all about what's your authority. And there is a ton of authority in this book. Well, for historians, all sources are not equal. The, the best way when I teach historical methodology, the best way that I, I teach my students is historical sources would be like a Thanksgiving dinner. Mm. The, um, the turkey, the turkey is the main stuff, right? Mm. It would be a diary, a letter in real time, not a letter, you know, 50 years later reflecting back, but a letter mm. in real time when the events occurred. That would be a, a turkey sort of thing. The diaries, meeting minutes, those are definite because you're, you're, you're dealing with private documents that were not meant for public consumption. Sure. The ancillary, the turkey trimmings, you know, the mashed potatoes and the gravy and the stuffing and all that, that's still important. But those would be like maybe newspaper uh, articles written about something. Could be an oral history you gave 30 years later reflecting back. Doesn't mean you can't use them because you reflect back. It just means it's not as good a source as the turkey. Sure, sure. Um, anyway, I, I have it all. I have the turkey. I have all the trimmings. I have the pie. I have the bread. I went to dozens of archives around the United States, the church archives. I went to the Eisenhower Presidential Library. I went to the Dewey Papers at Rochester University. I went to the Herbert Hoover Papers in Iowa. I went to the Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan Presidential Libraries in California. I mean, Elder Benson's a public person. He left a paper trail everywhere. I went to the Burt Society in Appleton, Wisconsin. Um, how, excited, how excited are they that you're in that you were in there now that you've written all this stuff about them? Are they like, we're not letting that doctor? <laughs> <Yeah. Harris be laughs> well, you know, those of you, your your listeners who who know the late Michael Quinn, who's a prolific scholar of Mormon history, just passed away a couple of years ago. But Mike Quinn years ago, did some work on Ezra Taft Benson and asked to get access to the Birch papers and they turned him down. Mm. And this would have been in the 90s. So when I asked for permission, maybe seven or eight years ago, I, you know, the president interviewed me on the phone and I told him, you know, I had family who were Birchers writing about Benson, who was a significant, you know, Bircher. And Benson never joined officially because President McKay would let him, mm. but he certainly would have if he could have. His wife and daughters and sons all joined. Mm. But anyway, 
you know, I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't a tough sell. I just said, you know, I have an influence or interest in this topic because of my own family's history in the Burt Society because of President Benson's leadership in the church. And he gave me probably three or 400 pages worth of letters between Robert Welch and Benson. They were close friends. Wow. And they were so close that Ezra Taft, they called each other by their first names, Dear Ezra, Dear Bob. And they were so close that in 1967, uh, Elder Benson wrote Mr. Welch a letter and he just said, I just moved from Salt Lake to this beautiful summer cottage in Midway, Utah. This would be an ideal place to relocate the Birch Society. Hmm. Sincerely, Ezra, P.S., I'm not kidding. Hmm. And Bob Welch writes back and he said, that, that is a very flattering thing. I know I've heard Midway is beautiful, but it would be too onerous and too costly to relocate from Massachusetts to Midway, Utah. Hmm. That's how close that Benson was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And anyway, back to your question, um, when he was in the, him getting, Benson getting radicalized, Jews, and we were talking about black people. And so he had never been around black people. That made him uncomfortable. He'd never been around Jews before. And Benson had some of the same anti-Semitic Jews or views about Jews that Reuben Clark had, at least early on. And there's this um, pamphlet that was written. It's a forgery, but it's called Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And it was written in the early 20th century by some Russians. And essentially what it, what it is, is, is that Jews are the ones who introduced communism and socialism to the world. And they have this secret plot to dominate the nation's or the world's money supply. And some of our biggest Jewish bankers are the Rothschilds in England, and they name a whole bunch of others. So Benson and Reuben Clark are exchanging this very hardcore conspiratorial pamphlet about Jews overtaking the world. And Clark sent it to Benson first, and Benson writes back and he said, this is incredible. This is amazing. And also, of course, Jews are working with black people to turn through using civil rights to turn everything into a communist conspiracy, all of that. So that's in 1957. And Clark writes Benson and he says when he sent him the Protocols of the Elders pamphlet, he said, please send this back to me. I can't have this out, meaning I don't want any of our other colleagues in church leadership to know about this Hmm. because um, President McKay in 1948, when he was a first presidency counselor at the time to, I think, George Albert Smith, President McKay loved the Jewish people and he supported the creation of a Jewish state. Hmm. And now you have another senior leader in Clark and then a junior leader in Benson promoting this terrible anti-Semitic trope that Jews are taking over the world and they're you know, spreading communism and socialism. And so Clark and Benson both realized that this was incendiary material and it should not get out. They didn't want President McKay to know about this. But they believed it. They believed it. Yeah. And, and you said this was this pamphlet turned out to be a forgery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If anybody, um, Josh, if anybody studies right wing extremism in a university, mm-hmm. um, you'll that's the first thing you're going to read about is the protocols of the elders of Zion. Wow. Uh, the person that used to publish it the most in his uh, newspaper called the Dearborn Independent was Henry Ford, the great mm-hmm. automaker. 
And I've and I've never heard of this this pamphlet before. This is the first I'm hearing about it. So so this was and this was written. It was a forgery by somebody who's proclaiming. When you say the elders of Zion, was it a Mormon pamphlet or was it like it came from someone else? Of course, Zionism is a Jewish term, right? Ah, okay. Yeah, no, not not a Mormon. Russians had had done it and right. written it, and we don't know who did it for sure, but we know it emanates from Russia and they're, they're forgeries. There's no, it, it basically, it was written in the early 20th century and it's purporting to tell a story about a bunch of Jews who got together in the late 19th century to hatch this secret plot to take over the world. Uh, and this is, is this also where kind of that stuff, I, I know uh, I've known some very extreme people in my, in my life and it's always fascinating to talk to them. Um, but I remember hearing about these these people like you. I think you mentioned the Rothschilds or the Bilderbergers, maybe as another group. Is that where this is coming from? This idea of these people who like are are at the top that have so much money nobody even knows about them and they're secret and they're controlling everything. That's where that comes from. Well, that's part of it. I mean, they're using them as examples. Ah, okay. Because the conspiracy starts, you know, again, the late nineteenth century, even though it was written, you know, like three decades later. So basically, it's Russians in the early 20th century concocting this scenario where Jewish people meet in the late 19th century, where they have this secret meeting. They're going to plot to overtake the world. They're going to give spread communism and all of that. Mm. And the Rothschilds would be just a manifestation of that that prophecy or that conspiracy. Okay. Not just the Rothschilds, but the Rockefellers in the United States as well. Ah, uh, okay. And so that's so so that kind of puts because Benson got it from J. Reuben Clark, he kind of views it as authentic. And so then that kind of puts him in this uncomfortable position when it comes to Jews in Washington. That's correct. Wow. Okay. And what's interesting is as a historian, I'm always interesting about how people are influenced. Right. And whose ideas, where do they, you know. In Benson's case, you know, how did he get radicalized, right? He, he wasn't always this way. How did he fall into this? Mm -hmm. And what did his fellow brethren think? Why did he turn against the president, call him a commie? Why did Benson think, well, when did he start reading about Gadiant and robbers and secret societies in the Book of Mormon? Why did he say that for the first time in, in a general conference sermon in the fall of 1962, right? Those are the questions that go on in my mind. And Sure. Sure. Because um, he'd never used those that language before, before the fall of 62, Gadiant robbers and secret combinations. And sure. Sure. anyway, um, with uh, where did Clark get radicalized? He, he had to get ra radicalized by somewhere. Right. Sure. And um, he was he was exchanging letters with a guy named Gerald Smith, who was a huge he was the biggest anti-Semite of his generation. He's writing again. He's 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 pro Hitler. He's he's praising Hitler. This is an American um, who praises Hitler, who owns a journal and writes all of these terrible, you know, things about Jews in this journal of his or magazine, I guess. So, again, he's very, very right wing, you know, extreme in the 1930s and 40s when most people are feeling sympathetic to our Jewish brothers and sisters for the Holocaust. Here you have Gerald Smith saying these horrible things. And um, Clark has this correspondence with him and falls under his spell, if you will. Sure. So Clark gets radicalized that way. And he turns, he shares these ideas with people that he thinks he can share them with in good faith. Benson, mm -hmm. obviously, he felt was a sympathetic voice. 
he would never have shared it with President McKay because President McKay would never have stood for it. And is this guy, how does he know President Benson? Is he, or Elder Benson, is he a member of the church or he's he known through politics? Are you talking about Gerald Smith? Yeah. No, he's not LDS. Okay. Not at all. No. So the, I guess the next question is, you know, obviously we're talking about an internal connection between Clark, who's radicalized, who's also anti-UN, mm -hmm. all of that. And Clark is the intellectual sort of godfather of Benson and Cleon Skousen. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. the guy that really influences Skousen and Benson. Sure. And um, Clark had been running around in these right-wing circles when he was a member of the government, you know, a decade or two earlier. He met some unsavory people and for whatever reason became infatuated with their ideas. And Benson and Skousen um we're also reading right-wing things in this case benson's case skousen too actually in the 1950s talk radio was becoming popular mm. and of course talk radio they're talking about communism and how do you fight communism this is the cold war and there were a few people that Benson really, really liked outside of Latter-day Saint circles and Robert Welch, the Birch president. One of the people that Benson quoted was he loved to listen to the program of a guy named Clarence Mannion, who was the former dean at the University of Notre Dame Law School. Hmm. And Mannion became radicalized into believing that the, co the government had been overtaken by communists and the UN and all of that stuff. Benson loved uh, Clarence Mannion's program and invited him to speak in Salt Lake on at least four different occasions. Benson loved, um, there was a guy named Dan Smoot who used to work for the FBI. Smoot said the same similar lines as, as uh, Mannion did. And so Benson invited Smoot to come speak at uh, Temple Square in the 1960s. And then there was a third guy that Benson absolutely fell in love with, a guy named Billy James Hargis, a fundamentalist Southern preacher. Hmm. Think about how funny that sounds, you know, a Mormon apostle from Idaho developing this close relationship with this fundamentalist uh, Christian preacher. But Hargis said everything that Benson believed that said it was such gusto and bite, you know. Mm -hmm. King is secretly flying every year to the Kremlin and getting his instructions. I mean, no evidence for any of this stuff. But this is what the Reverend Hargis is preaching. And Benson, on at least three or four occasions, Benson spoke at his segregationist rallies. So mm -hmm. he would fly to Hargis, wherever Hargis was speaking. And um, this would have been in the early 60s after Benson left his government service. And Benson would give these, you know, harangues against the civil rights movement. And then Hargis would get up next and just keep up the message. And it sounds like, if I'm not mistaken, you you correct me if I'm wrong, but but Elder Benson was against the civil rights movement because he believed it was it was kind of a front for the communist movement, and also because of state rights. Is that right? Correct. So so for him, I mean, because pe there are people out there who are probably going to be sitting there thinking, and 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 probably was to some extent. But I mean that this was all racism. Sounds like it's more he's more concerned with communism than race per se. Would you agree with that? No, I mean it's racism. Let's call it for what it is. Okay. 
Okay. And um, so the Barry Goldwater position is that the state should support civil rights, right? That's if anybody deals with civil rights, that would be the state position. Mm -hmm. Barry Goldwater, when I say Goldwater, I'm using him as a metaphor for most conservative Republicans in the early 60s. Sure. Um, because it's Barry Goldwater's position that makes it into the Republican Party platform in 64 when he runs. Mm -hmm. It's not Rockefeller or George Romney's moderate position. It's Goldwater's. Anyway, Goldwater also didn't think the government should uh, have the right to tell property owners who to patronize in their businesses. Mm. Of course, the Civil Rights Act of 64 says that you can't discriminate on you know race, color, creed, or ethnicity. And Goldwater... And David O. McKay, in particular, and Benson, they agreed that a business owner should have the right to turn away anybody they want, whether they're whatever race they are. And of course, Lyndon Johnson and the Department of Justice are saying, no, you can't do that. You can't turn away black people just because they're black, right? And today, the government allows this allows business owners to turn away people, like if they don't have a shirt on or shoes or something like that. That's but you can't. You can't turn away somebody because of the color of their skin. That's right. what the Civil Rights Act of 64 said. So um, Goldwater didn't like that. And Benson agreed with that. But he went one step further and he called King a communist. Mm -hmm. And the, the mainstream people in the Republican Party in the 60s, and I can't emphasize this enough, Barry Goldwater, a guy named William F. Buckley, who runs the National Review, the most conser prominent conservative um, Republican periodical at the time uh, and a whole bunch of other conservative Republicans, they don't believe that King's a communist. They don't support the civil rights movement, but it's not because they think he's a red. And that's a, that's where Welch and those other guys and Benson take it to another whole level. Even J. Edgar Hoover, who <laughs> is a conspiracist himself on so many levels, this is the FBI director. When he learned that Welch had called Ike a commie, he just said, that's crazy. That, that, no way. That's crazy. And Benson tried to meet with Hoover, knowing how popular Hoover was in the 60s. Benson tried several times to see Mr. Hoover because they had developed a friendship in the 50s, a decade earlier when Eisenhower, when Benson was in the cabinet. And Benson would frequently send Hoover his general conference sermons and other Mormon literature. And, and he, Benson loved Hoover because Hoover was always about law and order and basically advanced this Christian nationalist vision that resonated with Benson and Skousen. So they loved Hoover for that. They tried to get his stuff published in uh, the Enzyme or the Improvement Era, I guess. They, had, they tried to get him to speak in general conference. They loved Hoover. Well, in the 60s, Benson tries to meet up with Hoover, recognizing that Hoover's popular and could advance, you know, Benson's message. And Hoover makes up all of these excuses. Uh, I, I can't meet with you. I'll be out of town. But in private, he's telling his underlings, Hoover, that I can't meet with Secretary Benson. He's he's a bircher. He's aligned with them. They're too radical. I don't want to be tarred with that brush, hmm. which is an extraordinary thing to say. Because, again, Hoover is a conspiracist himself, but he even recognized that going after Eisenhower was just over the top. So to give a flavor of this, this idea of Birchers, is there a similar group today that would be like more resonating with listeners that would be akin to what the Birchers were in the 50s and 60s? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is where you asked the question. I'm going to give you an honest answer. You ready? Okay. All right, here we go. You're ready to make this my list. All the January Let's hear it. <laughs> this is all the January 6th stuff. This is the election is stolen stuff. This is the, yeah, there are strong, strong parallels because what happens is I think, and I, I don't mean to be, I don't want to be confrontational with anybody, but it bothers me greatly that our democracy is is in tatters right now. And to use a Mormon cliche, the, the Constitution is indeed hanging by a thread. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, is that so many people have been indoctrinated into stuff they hear where they don't question anything uncritically. Let me give you just one example. And I've done this with my own family members who think that the election was stolen. I have a sister anyway. I've done it with some other people. And it's just something as simple as this. So I had a, a student tell me, or yeah, I guess asked or said something about, you know, Professor Harris, what, did you see the thing in Pennsylvania where that person was taking all these ballots outside of the, the, um, the counting room when they count the ballots? And those ballots were all for, for Donald Trump. And I said, so what, what are you trying to say? Well, the election was stolen. And I said, well, let's talk about this for a moment. I said, so who was it that took those ballots out? I don't know. I saw it on the internet. I said, well, wouldn't it be important to know who that person is to see if they're legit? Well, I guess. How do you know that those are ballots that for, for uh, Trump and not Biden? I, I don't know. How do you think that one could steal all of these ballots when there are cameras around? How do you think that one could just simply walk out with votes for one presidential uh, party when there are poll watchers everywhere? And this, I said to the student, you, you, the student said that they took the ballots out and dumped them in the river. I said, don't you think if they dumped hundreds, if not thousands of ballots in a river, that somebody would have found them? They would have taken their phone and taken pictures? Don't you think that the authorities would have been there? That's a good question. Simple questions like that. And this is the same thing. This is the same piece of evidence, by the way, that um, Mr. Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, brought into court. And you know this, Josh. You're a lawyer. Yeah. Right? The judge asked Giuliani, who is that person? Did you meet him? Did you interrogate him? And yeah. of course, Giuliani is like, I don't know who it is. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that was what, when that, when people started doing the election thing, I actually think I posted this on Facebook when that, when that started coming around where people are saying the election was stolen in Arizona and Pennsylvania. And I think there was one other state. It was, I said, I remember saying on Facebook, I think it was, it just said, okay, so we have a judicial system and a process for showing this stuff so if they let them let them bring it let them bring their bring, bring their lawsuits right and if there's merit to it the judge will hear it and i remember reading one where they went in there and they went in front of a a, a george bush appointed judge so obviously would have been likely conservative right but sympathetic to their cause by the way Donald Trump, I think, named more judges than any other president in history while he was there, right? So he could have kind of picked anybody. And they went in there and got thrown out, you know? And it's like you said, the, was the judge in on it too? Was everybody, you know what I mean? And there but, was 70 but at the same time, 
there were lots of cameras around uh, Epstein when he uh, when he hung himself. So you know, I don't know. <laughs> you know. Well, but let's let's put it in context. There were seventy courts that ruled against Trump's claims. Seventy right. courts. Right. And you're absolutely right. A number of those courts were led by Trump appointees. Right. So I always teach my students. You know, it's got to pass the smell test. Right. And, you know, you just ask simple questions. You don't ever want to tell somebody, oh, you're stupid for believing that or, or denigrate them. That, that's not helpful. It's always going to be civil. But you just ask a simple question. What does it mean that 70 courts, including Trump's own judges, what does that mean that they threw them out because they didn't have merit? What does that mean to you? Are they part of the deep state too? I mean, it's crazy. Right. But yet most people, when I pose that simple question, you know, what does that mean to you that 70 courts, that's a fact, 70 courts have thrown them out right? We can argue about maybe why, but it is a fact that they got thrown out. And I have, I have yet to have, have anybody answer that question, a, a Trump person, a, mm -hmm. an election denier. What does that mean to you? They've sure. never gone that extra step and said, oh, they're all part of the deep state. Because yeah. that just doesn't pass the smell test that Trump would appoint his own people to the high court and they're part of the deep state. Right. So you're, so you think the, the people who are, um, and I know, I know several of them. I had a guy on not too long ago. Um, I was actually really surprised. He's a, he was probably one of the most ardent Trump supporters I knew um, through 16 and 20. And I had him on the podcast because I, you know, I'm not a, I find myself to be, I consider myself moderately conservative, but I've never voted for Donald Trump. And I just didn't understand it. And I wanted him to explain it. But he even told me, I remember him coming on and saying, I can't support him anymore. Once the all everything happened with their storm the Capitol, I just can't. I can't do that anymore. And I said, "Wow, you know, like that was actually pretty. You know, that's that's a pretty. Uh, it shows me that, that you know it's not blind support, right? And so, but uh, but the ones that still do, I mean, man, you know, that's rough. And it sounds like the uh, the Birch Society is very similar. Uh, is what you're saying." There was a very similar kind of well, art. I want to I want to clarify a couple of things. So, in terms of the conspiracies and all of that, very similar. Mm. And but the Birchers, as far as I know, they've never promoted violence, mm. never. And I also might say too that Elder Benson's never promoted violence. Mm. He's always talked about what the government. I, I, I note this in my book. He's he, he Benson talked about what the government shouldn't do to you. But he never mentioned if they do do it to you, this is what you do back. He never right. said that. Right. His, his, his answer to bad government was the right answer, which is go to the polls, go vote. Right. But don't storm the Capitol. Right. Well, and I also want to say one thing about Benson and Trump. I've been asked this several times, you know, if Benson were alive, would he have voted for Trump? And I would say resoundingly, heck no. Mm -hmm. Because Benson, if you read his sermons, he was just he hated the Russians. He just hated the Russians. Mm -hmm. So the whiff, any whiff of, of ties between the Russians or bots or whatever to the Trump candidacy is, would be problematic for Benson. But the biggest thing for Benson would be, he was a very moral man. He mm -hmm. always talked about choosing men of the highest caliber into public office. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, in 20, was it 2016 when those tapes emerged where Trump is talking about groping a woman, he's making sure. fun of disabled people in one of his campaigns with his hands. I mean, Benson would have been appalled by that behavior. The porn star payouts that we're seeing in the news yeah. now, Benson would have been, would have, 
would have been hard for him to support someone like Trump. He probably would have done what he had done at other times in his political career. He would have supported a third party candidate, in my view. Yeah, um, uh, I know a lot of people who did that. A lot of people who did that because they couldn't stomach Biden or Clinton, but but they just couldn't vote for Donald Trump for for those reasons. Exactly. It's interesting. The people who <clears throat> you bring up Benson being an ideologue, meaning he makes decisions on principle. But the people that I know, most of the people I know who voted for Donald Trump, when I talk to them alone, they've really voted for him because of policy over principle. Whereas they said, look, I don't like the guy, but his policies are in line with the policies that I want. So I voted for him. So that that is a big distinction. But well, now that we've shut off half the people who probably listen to this, uh, <laughs> let me go back to Benson and say, I wanted to I wanted to go back to something you mentioned because it seemed like in your book, one of the things that really ra- like started the radicalization and the anti-communist rhetoric was a trip he took to Europe after the war and saw the devastation. Um, but but what I kind of wanted to hear hear about more was so the devastation comes really from from the Nazis. Uh, so, so maybe you can clarify what it was exactly that President Benson saw post-war that made him anti-communist and, uh, and what he believed in American, why he came away feeling like God had called him to push American ideals. Yeah. Yeah. You asked that earlier and, and somehow he got moved off the track. So, so he goes to Europe and this is after the war is over. And he reached out to Herbert Hoover, who of course was the president when the stock market collapsed and Franklin Roosevelt defeated him handily in 1932. And Herbert Hoover was the quintessential, I guess, libertarian president. He just didn't think the government should be involved in the free market. And of course, Benson shared that same ideology Anyway, um, Herbert Hoover, before he was the president, he, he did a humanitarian mission himself during World War One. And this is to war torn countries over there. And so Benson wrote Herbert Hoover a letter and he said, my church has asked me to go to war torn Europe. This is 1946. What advice do you have for me? So he's reaching out to Herbert Hoover asking for advice. And Hoover basically wrote him back a very nice letter and he said, brace yourself. You're going to see things you've never seen before. It's one thing to hear about them, quite another to see them. And so Benson goes over there and it's, it's, it's one of the most memorable things in his life. He'll talk about this experience the day he dies, his time in Europe. And he writes back to his wife, Flora. He said, Flora, if I wasn't here, I couldn't, if I didn't see what I'm seeing now, I wouldn't believe it myself. And he proceeds to tell Flora that he sees these grief-stricken people who are emaciated. They haven't eaten in days. He sees people scrambling for food in the streets because they haven't had food and they're just like, you know, pouncing on what little might be available to them, even to the point where they're getting violent with each other because they're trying to hoard it for themselves and their families. And he writes back to the brother and, and he said, I don't even know where to begin. There's so much suffering here among the European saints. 
And so he meets with these people. He's trying to build them up. He does a heroic job, in my view, um, trying to build them up. He has a, a, a companion that goes with him, a young man named Frederick Babel. And later on, Babel write an experience of his time with Benson in war-torn Europe. And he, it's called On the Wings of Faith. And it's really a moving account of, of Benson's time, he and Benson's time there. Anyway, um, before Babel went, the brethren who called him, Benson didn't call him. Benson didn't know him. One of the other apostles called him to this task, this, this missionary assignment, which is strange because Babel had a young a wife and a young baby at the time. So basically leave your family and your employment for however long and go help out the saints in Europe. That's where the Lord needs you. Anyway, the apostle told, uh, gave Babbitt some counsel. And the counsel was this. Elder Benson is the most intense person you'll probably ever meet in your life. Do not counsel him. Only give him counsel if he asks for it. Mm. And that sounds really arrogant. But what, what he meant by that was, He'll consider everything you say so seriously. He'll consider it. I mean, really stew on it. So let him ask you. You don't offer it. That was the context. And the two men got along fabulously. Anyway, they went there, and Elder Benson wrote back to the first presidency and, and basically said, how can we help these people? How do we get them food? And the first presidency basically said, you need to work with local officials there that we can, you know, the, the, the church can send over money and supplies, but what good does that do if we can't get the supplies where it needs to go? And so Benson spent a lot of time working with government officials and train operators and things like that so they could move the goods and supplies around. And when he came back, it was, I think it was there 11 months, so a little less than a year. And when he came back, he, he just had this incredible aversion to totalitarian governments, whether they're communist or socialist or fascist. I mean, it just gave him this sixth sense because he saw this suffering, you know, people scrambling in the streets and all of this, people maimed. Oh, and he went to Warsaw, the, one of the most intense um, ghettos from the concentration camp. So he saw that and he said the smell was just horrific. So he came back to the United States and he... He, he said, anything bad in life comes from one of these isms. He's talking about communism, socialism, fascism. So he has this intense um, antipathy for totalitarian governments. And when he got, this is to answer your question earlier now, when he got called into the cabinet in 52, David O. McKay and Reuben Clark set him apart. And President McKay blessed him that he would be able to root out communism in the government hmm. and that he would be one of the people who would vouchsafe the constitution, safeguard it and protect it. And Benson took that, the church president's blessing as a call to not just fight communism, but also to big, big government. Hmm. For Benson, they were two heads of the same coin. Mm, mm -hmm. And now President McKay, I've read the blessing, I have it. He says nothing about big government, liberalism, Democrats, nothing about that. But Elder Benson will, will interpret those words to mean not just communism, but socialism, big government, and then later on it'll morph into Democrats as well. So um, 
so he gets this idea and he comes so it sounds like he he's in the cabinet from 53 to 61 right comes back resumes his duties so is that when he uh kind of starts ramping up the the right wing rhetoric within his work in the apostleship yeah so in may of 61 his son introduces him to robert welch uh -huh. Also, when he reads The Politician for the first time. Uh -huh. And I referenced the date earlier for a reason. Mm -hmm. In October 61, so five or six months after he reads The Politician and meets the Birch founder, that's the first time in the October 61 conference where Elder Benson will reference Gadiat and Robbers and uh, secret combinations and all of that. Mm. He's that's driven by Burt's rhetoric, and mm. he's using the familiarity of Mormon scripture to advance his political cause. And how does that resonate within the apostleship? Oh, Hugh Brown's angry and Moyle, they're furious because they recognize what he's doing. Uh -huh. he's, what, he's, about, what about the other guys who are kind of conservative but not radicalized? What, do they all kind of go and what is the deal? It goes right over their heads. They're not even, I mean, it's just like an, another sermon. Okay. And, but Brown and Moyle, they see the writing on the wall. He's using sacred scripture to further his conspiracy views, mm -hmm. his conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're not happy about it. Mm -hmm. But as far as I know, I've never seen any evidence that David O., who's pretty old by this point, and slowing down cognitively, as is Joseph Fielding Smith, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. He's he's in his early he's in his late eighties, I guess. And I've never seen any evidence that that they're using that rhetoric in their own conference sermons. Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't like communism, of course, or socialism, but they're not linking it to, to sacred scripture like Elder Benson is. You know, another thing I wanted to ask you about because you mentioned this in your book and. Um, you mentioned the white horse prophecy, which was the idea that that Mormons would be building up the, you know, holding up the Constitution by a thread. And you mentioned it earlier about this whole this whole concept. And you mentioned that Joseph F. Smith. Well, you said I think if I'm memory serves, you said that Benson had had quoted that prophecy more than anybody else in the time frame. But Joseph F. Smith had said in 1918 that that wasn't doctrine. Do the other apostles know this? Do they catch this? And they're like, uh, hey, man, <laughs> you know, like this, ain't, this ain't this isn't what are you doing? <laughs> you know, is, is any of that going on? Uh, I don't know about the white horse prophecy. I haven't seen any evidence for that, okay. but they are they are bothered by his his crusading because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Elder mm -hmm. Benson lapses into a crusade. His biographer a guy named uh, Francis Gibbons, who was a the secretary to the first presidency for a number of years, and then he left that calling and became a general authority. He wrote, for the most part, some a, a series of biographies on LDS presidents that Desert Book published. I think his last one was, I think it was Benson in, in 95. So he wrote from Joseph Smith to Benson. And then in 95, for whatever reason, he didn't do Howard Hunter. Maybe he, he was getting into up in age. I don't remember. But anyway, um, in Frank Gibbons's biography on Benson, again, it's a pretty good book um, for desert book standards. It's, um, well, meaning that 
it's not scholarly, so let's, I'm not going to judge it on that, but it does recognize Benson's influence with the Burt Society, where, whereas Sherry Dew's book that was published in 1987 does not even mention the Burt Society at all, which is just... Seems, <laughs> seems as though... Amazing. Seems as though that that's a big part. That, that, oh, it's... When I saw those letters, uh -huh. I mean, they're like that. Uh -huh. And for everything that Benson talks about in a sermon is... It, politics is driven by Birch ideology. And you you don't know that unless you know the Birch ideology. Right. And he's quoting stuff from the politician, that book we were talking about earlier. He's quoting from that in his own sermons. So so you think, let me ask you on that question there, um, because, you know, one of the things that I mentioned about your last podcast was that there were a lot of people who didn't know the narrative on on the priesthood temple ban. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who don't, I mean, I think everybody knew, knows that Ezra Taft Benson was the secretary of agriculture for Eisenhower and also very anti-communist. That's pretty clear. Do you think it was a situation that Sherry do just didn't understand the, 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 the Birch rhetoric, or do you think this is a situation where they're just, they don't want to bring it up? I've been told. So just consider my sourcing on this. Uh -huh. So everything I've told you at this point, I've had bulletproof sourcing. Okay. This is now moving out of the bulletproof range. Okay. But I've been told by pretty good authority. This is um, a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. Pretty good authority. But again, just secondhand, but pretty good authority that, that Sherry Dew was told not to talk about the Bird Society. Mm. Because you, she had access to his diaries in his private papers. Mm -hmm. And so she knew because... They're friends. They write letters all the time. Sure. And so I'm told that that I, I believe that, by the way. And the person that I've been told that that told her not to do it was Gordon Hinckley. Mm -hmm. And the reason my book talks about Hink, President Hinckley's role in a lot of this is that the church is trying to go mainstream, a little bit more mainstream, because Benson moves the church to the hard right. There's no question. Mm -hmm. Politically, you know, Benson... Had, had said over the years that you can't be a good Democrat and a good Latter-day Saint. Yeah. I've had people say to me, and, I, and I, I laugh about this. I've had people very close to me say this, and it always, it always annoys me. I roll my eyes every time. But I've had people tell me that they jokingly, every time they go in for a Temple Recommend interview, they use, I don't know if they still, I don't think they still ask this, but they used to ask, um, do you are you like associated with any you know group that has that has views that are adverse to the church's group or whatever and they would used to always joke and say well i'm not a democrat ha ha ha, ha you know and uh and so that's interesting i it's interesting to see i don't know why i mean i i didn't i it's interesting because all the people that i talk to now that i look back who say that they would have been growing up in the time that Benson would have been speaking at every general conference. I mean, it would have been from the 60s to the 80s, right? Which is where he's he's got the most influence. So it's very interesting how that that plays out. And how are the other members of the, I mean, if the church is kind of, I mean, it sounds like, and what I read in your book is that the church was very much like kind of 50-50 Democrat-Republican before this, maybe a little bit more Republican. Republican than Democrat, but then it's a hard shift to the right. Uh, 
how are the other members of the apostleship during this time frame reacting to this? Well, there's two two responses. One would be they react to the conspiracy stuff adversely. Um, Frank Givens, the biographer, wrote in his book, he said that that almost, I'm, I'm paraphrasing Gibbons, but he said that almost every sermon Benson gave publicly or in conference in the 1960s, so this would be general conference, BYU devotionals, uh, sermons to civic groups, they were always about politics, mm-hmm. and which is to say Burt stuff. He was driven hardcore by the Burt's message. And so the brethren pushed back on that hard they, because they wouldn't have cared probably two bits, in my opinion, except for Brown and Moyle. Most of the brother wouldn't have cared if it wasn't for the saints complaining about it. Mm-hmm. And this is why it's so important to get the turkey we were talking about earlier, because when you get the turkey, um, you see the letters. I've got thousands of letters in my home on, on all of this, and I'm amazed. Here, here's a letter I'll quote you. 1968, uh, this is in someplace, Springfield, Illinois. Elder Benson gave us a state conference there. And several people from that stake wrote into the first office of the first presidency after the conference and they said dear brethren we're appalled that elder benson spoke to us last saturday and sunday he railed against earl warren supreme court justice he railed against lyndon johnson the president he railed against democrats it was all political he's an apostle shouldn't he be teaching jesus christ himself uh in his crucifixion and that's the kind of stuff they're getting. And if they didn't get those letters, they would let Elder Benson be Elder Benson. But the church, they don't like that kind of criticism, particularly coming from um, an apostle at a venue that should be something more Christ-centered and Christ-focused, sure. right? Instead, you're getting Birch ideology. But see, the difference is, is that Benson didn't separate the two between a secular and a religious message. They were all one big ball of wax to him. So mm-hmm. he intertwined his politics and his religion. And a lot of Latter-day Saints couldn't do that, particularly if you're a liberal or you didn't believe in some of his conspiracy views. And so the brethren reined him in. David O., who was an anti-communist himself, who was very conservative, but he certainly didn't like the Burt Society. And he told Benson, he said, we've had so many complaints about you. You're no longer to speak at any of their events. You're done. And- oh, Burt events. Birch events. Okay. And Benson, you know, was chastised and he said, well, president, can I still speak on anti-communism? He said, you can, but don't mention the Birch Society. And the problem with that is that Benson was, was banned from, from even mentioning the word Birch in public, but he's still talking about anti-communism, giving the Birch message. And so for the saints, you don't have to say Robert Welch or the Birch Society. We know what you're doing. Right. Or if you don't know what you're doing, you're hearing one of the if you don't know the rhetoric, you're hearing one of the Lord's anointed spitting this message. If you don't know, like if you're just some guy out there and you don't know much about the Birch Society and you're hearing one of the apostles who are speaking on the behalf of God talk this anti-communist message that even the other apostles are struggling with. uh you know, you're 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 not getting that this is a political message. It's kind of it's it's kind of a mixture. That that's what I found so interesting about people of this time frame that I've talked to. They they tend to be, you know, in their 
most of the people that I think is influenced by this, I'm reading your book really helped inform me, quite frankly, about some of these older members of the church who are very much into conspiracy, very much into, you know, the Gadiant robber stuff and all that. It really helped me because it almost seems to me like there it's a, I don't want to use this term. Uh, I feel I hate using this term, but like the philosophies of men mingled with scripture kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like where, where it's like, I'm not saying that it was evil by any means or of Satan or anything like that. I'm just saying that it's one of those things where it kind of gets mixed and you're, you're not, you know, you're, you're not understanding what you're getting. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, would you agree with that? Because it just seems to me like the the danger of something like that is that you're you're hearing somebody who you believe speaks, and I believe speaks on uh, on the behalf of God, but they're giving a message that is political in nature. But you're you don't know it because you're not saying Birch Society. That's that seems like it could be even more problematic. Well, I think for, for Benson's view, he's kind of taught, he's torn, he caught out rock in a hard place because in that 52 blessing that President McKay gave him before he went to, to DC, he, the, the prophet tells him, you know, you were to guard against communism. And we mentioned how Benson took that to mean big government too. And here you have in the 1960s, several apostles, including Joseph Fielding Smith and Harold Lee, really conservative guys, they're coming down hard on Benson. Mm-hmm. And Benson's, and, and also David O. Benson's like, wait a minute, this is like a prophet's blessing for, to me. And you're telling me I can't do what the prophet told me to do. And he doesn't recognize how divisive his rhetoric is. And the brother and especially the first presidency, they're getting letters from all around the church. Wherever Benson goes, he's leaving a path. And clearly he has some very headstrong views and he thinks that he's, he's not a guy that can hold or entertain different points of view. And the only reason why he wasn't even reined in harder in the 1960s is because David O. loved Elder Benson. President McKay loved Elder Benson and he was his protector. And Harold Lee and Hugh Brown and others would write among themselves letters, and they would say that President McKay is protecting Elder Benson, and it's appalling. The minute, this is a Harold Lee, the minute President McKay dies, we're going to shut him up. And they're, they're very clear about it. That's pretty hardcore. It is. It is. And so what happens is, is that the very first general conference after or maybe it was the second, I can't remember. But shortly after President McKay died in January of 70, shortly after, might have been a year later, Elder Benson was back at it again. He talked about Birchers in his general conference sermon. He talked about Gadiat and robbers. I mean, everything that the president told him not to do, he felt he could do again because McKay was now gone. Mm-hmm. But what, what Benson did is he didn't play his cards right. I mean, he really overplayed his hand. And Harold Lee, who was the first counselor in the first presidency at the time, so this would have been 71, I think, or two, 72. Um, Joseph Filling Smith was really, he's 95 years of age. He's sleeping through half his meetings. I mean, he's not there mentally. So Harold Lee is running the church in 72 during Joseph Filling Smith's administration. 
just like Gordon Hinckley would do in the 1980s with Spencer Kimball and then Benson himself mm-hmm. when they fell ill. Anyway, Harold Lee went to Ezra Taft Benson and he, if you know anything about Lee, he did not have a filter. He was like Moyle. Mm-hmm. He told, he said, Taft, you are done. We don't ever, ever want to hear you use the word Gadiat and robbers, secret combination. If anyone mentions Gadiat and robbers and secret combinations, it'll be the president of the church, not you. We don't want you talking about government themes anymore. Focus on the gospel. Hmm. And this was so, you know, intertwined into Benson's DNA. He couldn't do it. A couple of years later, he gives this other rip-roaring government message again, but he doesn't mention secret combinations or anything like that. No Birch stuff, but it's still a political message. And he did it a couple of years later because that point, at that point, Harold Lee had died. Mm. So he's trying to do this with each president to see what he can get away with. Mm. And Spencer Kimball, who was kind of a soft-spoken guy, he's like five foot six inches tall. He's not a big guy. He's not a, he doesn't like conflict at all but he's no pushover. And when Benson resumed his anti-government Burt's message under Spencer Kimball's um, uh, presidency in 1974, Kimball called him in. Uh, He called him in and he said, your sermons are too divisive. Don't talk about Gaddy and robbers. Don't talk about that you can't be a good Latter-day Saint, a good Democrat. Don't denigrate the civil rights movement and its leaders. How can we spread the gospel into certain countries if you're calling everybody a socialist, a communist? They're not going to like it to Northern Europe. When he's getting this, what is his response? He listens for, he doesn't like it, Mm -hmm. but he obeys authority. And then, oh, I don't know, a year or two elapses and he's back at it again. Do you think, I mean, this may be you just kind of taking some creative license or interpretation, but... Do you think that 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 uh, that prophet's blessing that he received before going to be to serve as the department in the Department of Agriculture informed this? Like, is it a situation where he said, "Listen, a prophet from a revelation got a revelation from God that this is what I'm supposed to do, and you're trying to ham- hamper it"? How does he? If and if that's true, how do you? Does it, is there anything written in there that you've seen that kind of justifies in his head why he still does this when other prophets are telling him not to? Well, so he's been radicalized. Benson's mm-hmm. been radicalized by the Burt Society. And mm-hmm. so that is, he just believes in it so deeply. Mm-hmm. At the core of his being, he thinks the Birchers are right, that the communism is in, in dem- Democrats and big government and social welfare programs, they're going to destroy the gospel. He, he's convinced of that. But, um, but the prophet's blessing is that this is his this this is his whole purpose for being an apostle mm-hmm. if you talk to any apostle josh they, they they don't really admit this publicly but i think i'm fair to say I, I might be wrong in this but i think i'm on good ground to say the following which is that every apostle has a purpose for which they're called into the 12. Mm-hmm. sometimes they're told what their purpose is other times they discover it themselves for example I know this for a fact. When Dallin Oaks was called in in 1984, um, they wanted his lawyer skills. The church had some legal issues. They wanted a lawyer. And, and then his purpose um, would sort of evolve 
into being Elder McConkie's replacement as the great doctrinal expositor. Now, Elder Oaks does not, did not and does not create doctrine like Bruce McConkie did. Mm. But it's if you ever ask yourself why certain apostles always give certain kind of sermons, the kind of flavors, and other ones give these very dare, dire sermons and even sometimes dour sermons, and it's not because they want to. It's because this is the role for which they're asked to play. And so Elder Oaks is frequently giving doctrinal sermons in conference because he was envisioned to be the replacement to Bruce McConkie when Elder McConkie died. And Elder Benson's role is to protect the church and the nation against communism and big government. And that's the role that he thinks President McKay assigned to him. Mm. And so, what does he do when new new prophets come along and they're like, uh -uh. See, that's that's the hard part. There's that dissonance where, on the one hand, a former prophet told me what my role is, and I, I agree with it, I believe it, and then I'm getting pushback from other prophets. Elder Benson pushes the line as much as he can. I mean, I, in my book, I talk about this. But he's he's chastised on four or five different occasions. When I say chastised, I mean I mean they're reading him the riot act mm -hmm. because he won't stop. And Harold Lee, he grew up with Harold Lee. Harold Lee was a blustery, very aggressive sort of personality. His daughter, Harold Lee's daughter said, she said, quote, my father had a terrible temper. Hmm. And if you read meeting minutes and things of that nature, you'll see Lee's temper. It is there. Hmm. And so Lee had no problem telling Benson, you know, you're not going to do this. And then really lay down the law if you don't. You know, there's going to be serious consequences. Let me give you one example. Um, Lee told Benson after that controversial sermon to not talk about the Gadiat and robbers. And so he chastised him. And then shortly thereafter, they were at one of their Thursday meetings in the temple. And Benson was asked to prepare some program on the youth of the church. I don't remember the details, but prepare a presentation to the brethren about some youth programs. And Benson stood up, ignored everything that President Lee had asked him to do, and started to make the pitch that the youth would be best served by studying anti-communism. And he went off onto the Birch message again. This is in the temple on one of their Thursday meetings. Harold Lee stood right up and walked right out in the middle of his presentation. That was his way of showing how disgusted he was with it all. So anyway, um, so he starts it again with Kimball and President Kimball calls him into his office on at least two occasions in 74, right when he's president. And he said, he said, Elder Benson, you are the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. This is a far more serious calling than anything you can do politically. You are divisive. What you say matters to the saints. They complain to us. Stop. This is 74. And he tones it down a little bit, but then he picks up steam again in 1980. And this is the last time in 1980 that Elder Benson will ever go off the political tracks. And the reason is, is because he gives a speech at BYU in February of 1980. And he, it's called uh, 14 Fundamentals in Following the Prophet. You've, you may have seen it. It's been republished in church literature over the years. And he said something in there. He said two things in there that really, really bothered the brethren and also Latter-day Saints, or at least the people who complained about him. He said that the current prophet is more important than a dead prophet. 
And a lot of the brethren were angry at that because essentially that was an affront to earlier prophets. Mm -hmm. So the current prophet's more important than a dead prophet. And then the second thing he said that angered them was that the prophet may speak for the church even in political affairs. Ooh. And so with those two statements. That sounds, like a, that sounds like a way to get your tax exempt status taken away. <laughs> well, but that's not it at all. What what's what's going on here is that everybody sees the writing on the wall. That mm -hmm. Benson Benson said this in private for a long time, which is that he wanted to see the church align with the Republican Party, just like the evangelicals did with Ronald Reagan, the moral majority. Mm -hmm. So he saw the moral majority as a blueprint for the church. And plus, uh, Benson, he left the Republican Party in 68, as I mentioned, and he came back to the Republican Party when his friend Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980. Mm. And so with Reagan's election and with Spencer Kimball's very poor health, Benson knew that he was going to be the next church president. So he that, that BYU devotional speech in February of 1980 was prepping the church for his presidency. Right. Now he didn't have a crystal ball. He didn't realize that he wouldn't be, you know, take the president's seat until I think it was president Kimball died in November of 85. So he was, I think in December of 85, he was ordained the 13th president. But that was the whole idea that when I'm the prophet, I'm going to align ourselves with the Republican party. And remember what he said, the current prophet is more important than a dead prophet. Mm. And so when a lot of Latter-day Saints complained, it made the newspapers, when they complained about this, President Kimball called him in yet again. And he said, what you said at BYU was so offensive, you need to apologize to your, your fellow brother in the Quorum of the Twelve. So here you have the church's most senior apostle, President Kimball, telling the second most senior apostle, you screwed up. It's so embarrassing what you did and the, the media uh, publicity you brought to the church. You need to apologize to the brother and the 12 in the temple. Next Thursday, you're going to do it. So Benson's humiliated and he apologizes. Kimball pulls him aside and he said, you know, I don't think that was sincere. I want you to apologize again the following week. This time we're going to bring in all the quorums of the 72. I mean, he's thoroughly humiliating him. And Benson, um, I don't know what he thought if he would be removed from the Quorum of the Twelve because his son wrote a letter to his father. One of his sons wrote a letter to his father on the day that he was supposed to apologize. And he said, we've been fasting for you. We know this is weighing on you heavily. I mean, he was really worried that, you know, he crossed a line and President Kimball was going to rein him in because President Kimball's a visionary. He wants to bring the gospel to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. And here you have a senior apostle saying that, you know, that King's a communist. That's not going to be well for missionary work in Black Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa. Well, especially in the late 70s, early 80s. Exactly. It's kind of already been decided at that point. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's that good for you can't do this, Ezra. And he said, you can't call so you can't call people who are socialists, you can't call them satanic. Mm -hmm. They're not satanic. People in Norway and Denmark and Sweden, they love socialism. Canada, how can we bring these saints or these people the gospel if we've got this high-profile apostle saying that their political traditions are satanic? I mean, that's just, it's not good. 
So President Kimball, being the great visionary that he was, and also President Hinckley, great visionary, they both recognized that this right-wing extremism was damaging the church hardcore. And so after that, that um, February 1980 sermon or address at BYU, that's the last time he speaks publicly about the Burt Society, about anything political that's damaging. And during his presidency, there's a few times that he'll say stuff about Gadiant robbers, but it's just sort of offhand. And by his presidency, um, he has surrogates that are spreading the Burt's message for him because he's been so thoroughly reined in by the senior leaders, including his own counselor, Hinckley, Tom Monson, and if you can believe it, of all people, Boyd Packer. Hmm. Those three people recognize that his extremism is harming the church and that it's not good to be viewed as a, as a one-party church. Mm-hmm. And in 19- well, well, I want to ask you real quick on that because you keep referencing all these letters that they're getting against President Benson, but I got to imagine he's probably getting letters that are encouraging him to continue. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point, Josh. Yeah. So, I mean, how, I mean, yeah. are, are there, are, is there, uh, because he's being a controversial figure and we're seeing this shift. Does the, maybe, and I don't know if you know the, the numbers, but when does the shift start? Like, is it starting in the 60s? Is it starting in the 70s? Is he, as he, was it when it becomes a prophet? I mean, when does that kind of come along? You mean the shift into sort of more of a mainstream or moderate or? Yeah, like when does the church start really starting to shift to the right? Is it is it is it really gradual or is there a big shift when he becomes prophet? When does oh that- you oh let's be let's define our terms. When you say right, do you mean supporting Republican Party candidates in elections, or do you mean just sort of right wing extremism? I think both, because one thing I wanted to really talk about, I mean, we're, we're still kind of going through the story of, of President um, Benson. But one of the things that I, I wanted to also talk about is there are all these stories now you hear in the 80s and stuff like that of right wing extremism and particularly um, like anti-government rhetoric. Like there was just a there was just like a six or eight part series with Andrew Garfield about the um, what would they call it uh, murder amongst the Mormons or something like that, where the two brothers had killed their sister-in-law because they thought they were getting this anti-government, you know, revelations that, I mean, so this is all kind of happening at this same time. And I know there are more stories like that, but I think maybe we could talk about both. When does the shift politically happen? And then when does the right wing extremism start really kind of bubbling up? So the, the political shift is with Nixon. Okay, so in, in the like, early 70s, yeah. remember the Saints in Utah vote for for they vote for Eisenhower, but they vote for two of the liberal presidents in the 20th century for FDR and Lyndon Johnson. Right, right. And then they vote for Richard Nixon and they've never they've never gone back and voted for a democratic candidate since Nixon. The reason you're, you're talking about you're talking about Utah Mormons. You, yeah, that's correct. Utah Mormons. But you'll find that there's the polling would hold out for the rest of the country too. Sure. Sure. There is a shift in the church. And today the church is, is one of the most heavily identified Republican supporters in the country. We've yeah. got good, good data on that. Been that way for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question is, why did they morph? They've been supporting these two liberal presidents and these liberal programs. Mm-hmm. And um, it was social issues. 
the civil rights movement freaked out a lot of the Latter-day Saints. Um, Black Power, Black Panthers, Malcolm X's, you know, folks like that scared a lot of Latter-day Saints. And of course, Skousen and Benson threw gasoline on the fire. Um, abortion would be another one. The Equal Rights Amendment in the early 70s is coming down the pike. And so Mormons are really parallel, paralleling evangelicals at this time in terms of these social issues that are important to them. Mm-hmm. And so, and of course, you know, low taxes and things like that. Um, so Mormons will shift because of these views. They'll also shift because you have this very outspoken apostle saying that you can't be a good Latter-day Saint and a good Democrat. And Benson said that in 1974 to the Salt Lake Tribune. I mean, we hear that. Nobody can quite put their finger. Where did he say that and who? It was 74 to the Salt Lake Tribune. He'd been saying it earlier for years. Mm -hmm. But they were just sort of in these, you know, offhand ways, just talking to different Latter-day Saint groups. But now he's saying it to a reporter who's got a pretty big reach. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so those words, of course, have been etched into the minds of Latter-day Saints, even to this day. And it was so bad in 1998 that President Hinckley, who's then now the prophet, um, asked Marlon Jensen, a member of the first quorum of the 70, and a lifelong Democrat, he said, can you give a, an address with the, or can you give an interview with the Salt Lake Tribune and, and say that it's okay to be a Democrat and a Latter-day Saint? And this is President Hinckley, a moderate Republican, telling one of his Democrat general authorities to give this interview. Mm. And of course, he didn't mention Benson, Elder Jensen, but that was the context in which he was to give this interview, was to push back on this this stuff that Benson had been saying for most of his adult life. The second question was, when did the church become radical? The the answer is the 60s. Mm. And Skousen and Benson did a lot of, they had a lot of influence with Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. Let me start start right there. When you say the church became radical, do you mean that members, the, members, the, that that Some. members generally became radicalized, or do you mean like there was a kind of a a, 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 a minority, like a large minority? What do you mean by that? A, a very large vocal minority. Okay. Um, yeah, not the church. Let's be clear, because most of the church leaders are not in favor of the Burt Society. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Hugh Brown. I, I have several letters from Hubie Brown in which he says that. He said, I know personally that most of the brethren, and he put most in all caps during one of these letters, in one of these letters, most of the brethren, including President McKay, do not like the Burt Society. Hmm. And there's probably two apostles and maybe one general authority that I've identified that are sympathetic to the Burt's position. Hmm. And LeGrand Richards, Delbert Stapley, and a couple lower level general authorities. But really, most of the brethren don't like it. They're conservative politically. But sure. remember, I'm trying to draw a distinction between being conservative and extreme. They're two different views. Sure. Right. And the extreme stuff would be all the conspiracy views from fluoridation of the water, Dr. King, UN, you know, stuff like that. Sure. Um, Eisenhower being a commie. And so that starts in the 60s. And it, it you know, it, it it's we can we can debate and argue about when does it end if it indeed has ended. Right. Because. We saw, uh, what, year and a half ago, after the storming of the Capitol, there was a poll done. And I think the poll was something like 72% of Mormons said that the election was stolen. Hmm. And I know I know for a fact that the brethren today, they're, they're troubled by this. Hmm. They're absolutely troubled by this because this is radical extremism. Mm-hmm. 
And um, it's not a good look for the church. You're, you're trying to spread the gospel everywhere. And if you're just so narrowly focused on partisan politics, it's just not a good look for the church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know that, and I'm, I'm sure you know this too, that when President Nelson and some of the other brethren were were encouraging the saints to get vaccinated. I mean, there were a ton of people on social media that went berserk. Ooh, I know a lot of I know a lot of people who uh, who were really. Uh, I, there were a lot of people who were very turned off by the by the president by President Nelson saying that, and a lot of people turned off by the visceral reaction of the members who had a problem with that. I, I was actually really, you know, it, it was funny because uh, I found it very interesting how many of the people who were traditionally follow the prophet, follow the prophet, kind of you follow them no matter what they say, who found themselves in a place that 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 often others find themselves in where they're like, do I really believe that or not? And it was really it was really fascinating for me to see um, how many of the people who were like they seemed like the type of people who, if President Nelson had said, you know, jump off a bridge, they would have tried. You know, uh, who boy, that was a that was a big one. It was really surprising to see and. Um, yeah, I mean that kind of I think that supports the position that there is still a bit of an extreme right uh tinge, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's uh you know the the churches for a long time they've always always at least for probably half a century now they've been giving out reminders before election years, do not talk about politics. Do not, you know, say that you can be a, you, you can't be a democrat or any other political party. So they give these reminders out because they don't want people standing in the pulpit, over the pulpit, and saying that, you know, I know that Joseph R. Biden is a communist and that you should vote for so-and-so. They don't want that because that is immediately put offish to people who don't share those political views. And the brethren have been trying to create a neutral space um, in the church for a very long time. And you know, we can debate and argue if they've been successful, but I know they have been. And, but even though they still say things like that, there are still Latter-day Saints in, in conservative areas like Idaho in particular, who will share their political views and testimony meeting without a filter. And it's, it's offensive. I'll tell you what, fast and testimony meeting is one of the most fun and painful things to watch. <laughs> if you're in some of those places, we, you know, I've I've been I've been through those those political constitution speeches in Fast Sunday, which are not for people who are not members of the church. Fast testimony meeting is a time where people are supposed to get up and bear their testimony, the truthfulness of the gospel, and and the Savior Jesus Christ. But sometimes people get up there and it becomes a a bully pulpit or uh, or, a, or or share share story time. You know, it's not exactly done the way. It was supposed to. It's it's supposed to be done. But I I have a question on this. It's kind of a broader question, getting away from President Benson, but just politics in the church in general. And that is, how does the how do the brethren, and maybe in your reading you've you've seen this. How do they 
maybe a better way to ask it is there are some political issues that are also kind of moral issues, right? I mean, the things I think about are abortion and LGBT issues, right? Where there's a lot of members who, who look at these as moral questions more than political questions, but they are divisive politically and they are kind of become political issues. So how does the church who, who has, who have moral stances on these, on these issues, make that a safe space for members? Has there, are you aware of any discussions or any, anything you found in your research that shows how the church kind of wrestles with that? You mean these, these, Divisive social issues, how do they, in the church's positions, how is it a safe space for? for yeah, that? yeah, I think a better way to put it, like, for example, I'm sure that that President or Elder Benson, when he's giving these these discussions or he's giving these talks where he's talking about anti-communism, he's looking at this not as a political issue, but as a moral issue, right? Um and so, like, I know that the people who are very staunch in their beliefs on some of these divisive political beliefs don't look at them as political issues. They look at them as moral issues. So uh, I, I think about the people who have members of their family who are a part of the LGBTQ community. They don't view it as a political issue. It's a moral issue. It's their loved one. Um, and vice versa. Like, there's a lot of people out there on the right or or you know when they think about abortion and they think about they think of it as killing a, a, a baby or a potential baby that's a moral issue to them so where's the line you know where's the line where it becomes political uh and not just moral and how does the church wrestle with that i don't think they do wrestle with it i think the way that they deal with the social issues which by the way, we can't untangle the moral from the political. Yeah, that's the hard part, right? They're intertwined. And whether you're a liberal or a conservative, I think that's the only common ground they might share on these issues is they both think they're they're political and moral issues, right? For a liberal, for example, abortion is more than just terminating the life of a fetus. It's also about a woman's health, which is very much a moral issue. Sure. Right? Sure. So the, the church deals with these issues the same way they've dealt with civil rights, which they didn't think was a moral issue, believe it or not, hmm. um, is don't talk about them. Yeah. You don't talk about these things in Sunday school. They don't want you to talk about politics. And Elder Benson and Cleon Skousen pushed the church in the 60s really, really hard. You know, let's get our, our youth in particular to study anti-communism. And the brethren, no, that's going to be too polarizing. We're not going to do that. And so Today, the church doesn't want to talk about these kinds of issues. They don't want you to talk about race. Um, and when they talk about, you know, the church's views on marriage, it's just sort of with a tacit understanding that you're supporting a nuclear heterosexual family, right? And the, the, the pretext would be, or the subtext would be, you can't support LBGTQ marriages and be in alignment with the church's teachings. But you'll notice, you'll, you, you look at a manual, you'll never see LBGTQ. I mean, they just don't do that. What they do is they always, the messages are always more subtle than that. But they, they just don't want to deal with controversial issues. Um, Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants, when you look at the lessons uh, on that, I mean, that's, that's a polygamy revelation, right? Mm -hmm. 
And every manual that I've ever seen that deals with Section 132, it says, don't talk about polygamy, which is like, what? That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. That's right. But again, they don't want you to talk about things that are divisive. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of torn on that. On the one hand, these things need to be talked about, right? Especially right. race. Mm -hmm. Maybe abortion or some other things maybe ought to be left out, I suppose, because you'll never get agreement, you know, in, in Latter-day Saint uh, meeting houses, and you don't want people arguing at church. That would not be a good look. But they just they just ignore these tough things, and it's uh, so. What happens is if the church isn't a space to talk about these things, because other churches talk about social issues all the time. Sure. The this church doesn't, and. So what happens is, is that Latter-day Saints feel the need to create another space to talk about things that are taboo at church. So, for example, that's the reason why the journal Dialogue, a liberal Mormon journal that was created in 1966, that's why Sunstone was created in the 70s. That's why we get all kinds of blogs today, whether they're conservative or liberal or whatever, because it's a space for Latter-day Saints to interpret social issues through the lens of an LDS theology. It's all forbidden from doing at church. Yeah. I mean, that's why that's part of the reason why I've had this podcast is is because I want to talk about interesting issues. I mean, my my podcast is not a Mormon podcast by any means. It just so happens that it's something I'm interested in. But I want to talk about these because, yeah, you can talk about these in any in any depth at church. And I don't think that people understand some of the some of the. Um, I think, I mean, you. it seems like you agree that some of the fallout from what you're talking about, and that is President Benson, Leon Skousen, J. Reuben Clark, that um, I think the, the we're feeling the fallout of that right now. I mean, it's it's affected a gen, over a generation. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I would tell you, maybe this is just the Californian in me because I live in California. It's probably much different. But I, I have found that, that that it's much more. There are a lot more, I, I would say, moderate and liberal people now than there were 10 to 20 years ago um, in the church, in the church. Yeah, at least out here. I mean, it, it's 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 definitely still overwhelmingly conservative and, and i and i'm not even saying that there's people out there who are uh, there's a lot of democrats i'm just saying that there's a lot of people who are much who feel i seem are much more moderate and progressive now than there were even 10 years ago particularly when it comes to some of these issues like the lgbtq stuff race um even abortion um i've i've seen quite a few that have changed. Um, and I don't know if that's just a generational thing or if it's also the fact that since President Benson has passed, the uh, political rhetoric has, rhetoric has softened. I, I think it's, um, there's probably a couple of ways to explain that. One would be that the church is more sensitive to being this one party church and they've really, really addressed it hard. Mm -hmm. So more people have felt comfortable coming out and saying, look, I'm a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're comfortable you know, saying it at church and maybe even making a joke about it. So I think that they have, I'm thinking of um, Ella Rokes's, um April of 2021 general conference sermon. This is just after 9-11, uh, not 9-11, but uh, January 6th, after the insurrection. 
Ellie Rokes gave a talk on Easter Sunday in which he talked about, it was all about politics, which is very strange given the holiday of Easter, right? Sure. Every other general authority talked about Easter messages and here's Elder Hoax given this, this political one. But, but on the other hand, it was probably, you know, appropriate given that what, what had just had happened, you know, a couple of months earlier at January 6th. So people feel more comfortable coming out and identifying politically to whatever party. And I think also the church is, you know, it's pretty, it's sloppy of people to always throw the church in the same room with evangelicals. Mm-hmm. the folks that put Reagan into office. And there's a lot that's there. There's no question. But the church in recent years has moved to, in my opinion, the center right a little bit on some issues like immigration. Mm. And the church has not moved to the center right on abortion, for sure. They've held the same abortion message for decades now, which is that, you know, don't do it. But if you do need to do it, it's okay for the exception of the mother and the health of the child, right? Right. And we're seeing some some states now passing the most draconian laws that I don't care if there's rape or incest or the health of the mother. Doesn't matter. You can't get get an abortion. The church actually, I think, I don't remember when it exactly was, but it used to be uh, health of the mother, rape and incest. Those were the ones we could. Now they've added um, when you if it's a situation where the the child has a disease where it will not live past a few hours, you know, kind of one of those things where yeah. I, I remember a, a lady in one of my passwords, she, she had a baby that they just knew it wouldn't live past the first day. Mm-hmm. Uh, she ended up having the baby and having a pretty, I, they testified about it uh, in the testimony meeting a few months later, a pretty rather spiritual experience in having the baby for the, for the hours that they had it. But, that's a side. That's another. They recently, in the last uh, five to ten years, have have uh, added that to it, which I found very interesting. Because if you go to general conference, you have people out out there protesting, saying that the church is liberal on abortion, which I find really interesting. But well, I guess it is liberal compared to say Alabama that wants to ban it in all cases whatsoever. Right. Right. right? But the church is also moderate. I, I mean, I use these words loosely. But the church does not have the same views about LBGTQ as many folks in the evangelical community, right? The church, because well, we get attacked pretty hard. I mean, the, the the Mormon church gets attacked pretty hard, and I think that's probably because of their role in Prop Eight. But yeah, and deservedly so, I, I might add. Some of the stuff that went on in Prop Eight was despicable. But but with the LBGTQ now, I know that Elder Oaks and some other church leaders have been promoting, you know, unions for. And of course, that'll never be satisfying to somebody in a committed relationship. But but that's still heads heads and shoulders above what evangelicals are saying. You know, no unions, no marriages, no nothing. Mm-hmm. And so the church has tried to broker a compromise of sorts. And again, when you're dealing with something that people think should be a fundamental right, you know, myself included, maybe a compromise is you just don't compromise things like that. But the church has done that. And I think that the church deserves, you know, some credit for that. Yeah, I think that's an, it, it, that is, a, I personally think that the church's relationship with the LGBTQ community will be one of the more interesting things to watch in the next 20 to 30 years to see what happens with that. Because it's just, you're right, like the, it leaps and bounds, leaps and bounds different than, I mean, Prop 8 was, 15 
how long ago? 15, oh. six, 17 years ago? Oh, yeah. I was in law school uh, here in Sacramento when that was going on. And my law school had the largest, what's called the Lambda Law Fraternity, which was the gay rights fraternity back then in California. And there were not a lot of members of the church in my in my section. So it was a very interesting, controversial time for me being on campus and then also being a member of the church where the church was coming around. And I mean, I remember people say it didn't happen that I can tell you personally, I had a, a, a member of my ward who is a member of the elders quorum presidency knock on my door and tell me that it was my priesthood responsibility to give all my time and talents and money to the cause of prop eight. And I said, well, I don't have any of that, so <laughs> you're not going to get it. And uh, um, and so being a poor uh, poor law student at the time, I didn't really have a lot of help or have a lot to give. Um, but yeah, it was it was very interesting and very to to see how strong the church was. And people forget, and this is something that's interesting with regard to that. This is a little bit of an aside, but people forget that. I mean, like. It overwhelmingly passed. I mean, it wasn't like Mormons drummed it up. I mean, it was like 67, 80, 67 to 70 percent, I think. I mean, it was not a close win. So when we say that the church has kind of progressed, society in general has progressed really fast on that issue. So yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, that and you look at interracial marriage is another one, right? Where that's so funny because again, this could be just my California thing, but I've I have never once, I don't think ever, other than like some really fringe people, I just don't ever remember ever hearing anybody having a big deal about interracial marriage. <laughs> except except I, I I will say, I think I told you in my last in my on our last podcast, I do remember there were well, I don't think that was interracial marriage, but I remember two African American members of the church. Um, who were called the high callings, uh, high, high, you know, uh, high levels of leadership callings, and uh, letters were written to the state presidency about that. Um, but as far as like an interracial marriage issue, I just, I never, I've never heard anybody really whining about it. So, but it sounds like that's maybe that's different in other parts of the country. Oh yeah, yeah. If you, the church even struggled with it. Um, even after the priesthood revelation, they wanted to keep the number of African-American students at BYU down. This is early 80s. Hmm. They proposed quotas to keep uh, the number of black people at BYU. And the direction was, it doesn't matter if they're LDS or not. We just don't want a large number of, of black Latter-day Saints at, at BYU. And the reason is, is because of interracial marriage, even in the early 80s. Wow. And this was not a monolithic thought, of course. There were some general authorities like Marin D. Hanks and some others who thought that, you know, there's a reason why the church supported interracial marriage or opposed it before the priesthood revelation, right? Sure. Sure. But after the priesthood revelation, why does it matter? Mm -hmm. And But yet, the only reason why people like Elder Packer and others opposed it is just because of racial prejudice. Just There's no other way to explain it. And after the revelation and Marion Hanks, of course, thought that this would be a great way to break down barriers in the church. If black and white people fall in love, so be it. Let them get sealed in the temple. Off sure. they go. 
you know, this is a this is might be a good place to talk about this um, because uh, there's probably people who are listening to this. I know there is because I got it from the last one. Um, who think that the conversation we're having is somehow either being incredibly critical of the church or being, uh, you know, talking ill of the Lord's anointed. I've heard that uh, in the past. What would you say to somebody who hears this and has that taste in their mouth listening to this podcast? I would say that there are two two streams of thought on this sort of thing. I hope I haven't been disrespectful. That's just not what I would want to do. And if I ever was disrespectful, I would feel badly about that. But I follow President Kimball's line of thought about church history. And that is, tell it warts and all, because if you don't tell it, somebody else will. Mm. And President Kimball had a remarkably candid view towards history. And Elder McConkie and especially Elder Benson and Elder Peterson and Elder Packer did not share President Kimball's views. Mm. And let me give you one story to highlight this. Ed Kimball, President Kimball's son and also biographer, uh, law professor at BYU for a number of years, passed away probably five or six years ago. Great man. And Edward Kimball is one of the people that got that allowed me to get access to his father's papers at the church archives. Anyway, he also gave me a whole bunch of documents that will be in my next book on uh, Black Latter-day Saints and the priesthood band that will be out next year. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Edward Kimball wrote um, two biographies of his father. The first one was published in 1977 when he thought his father wasn't going to be the president very long. And, you know, so he wanted to write a book that covered his father's presidency. Then all of a sudden he didn't realize that the ban would be lifted the following year and that there was more to his father's presidency. How would it affect the church, you know, lifting the ban? So he wrote another book in the early 80s, a manuscript anyway, that Elder McConkie got a hold of and he read it. Ed Kimball did not share this manuscript with Elder McConkie, hmm. but he got a hold of it anyway. And he met with Elder McConkie. McConkie asked him about it. He just said, look, this is just too, too, too graphic. This is too straight. This is too this, too that. Take this out. Take that out. You know, he was really reading Edward Kimball, the riot act. You're telling details about the revelation that shouldn't be told. I mean, just on and on and on. And Edward Kimball, I heard him. He told me this story himself personally. So this is my source on this. And I said, what did you do when he's talking to you? He said, I just listened. I didn't say a word. And then when he was finished, I talked. I said, what did you say? And Kimball said, I told Elder McConkie that my father read this manuscript and loved it. He loved the detail. He loved the, you know, the, the, the way that I portrayed the events. I mean, just everything. And so Edward Kimball was just saying in a very innocent way, you know, okay, you don't like it, but my father did. And it's his book and I'm going to follow his views. Hmm. And even though that book was, that manuscript was published in the early, or written in the early 80s, it wasn't published until the 21st century. He sat on it for a long time uh, because some of the people that are in the book were still alive. A lot of the brethren were. And he, for whatever reason, he just didn't want to publish it at the time. 
So he waited and waited and waited. And Deseret Book published a heavily redacted version of the original manuscript. And then the original manuscript was published by a, a, another publisher, an independent book publisher, a few years after the Desert Book copy came out. And the mm -hmm. second um, from the independent publisher is the, uh, is the original one from the early 80s without all the Desert Book redactions. Hmm. And anyway, it's a remarkable book about his father. And so my, my answer to your question is that I definitely follow the President Kimball view of history. The church has nothing to hide. The church has frequently said, I'm thinking of President Hinckley's magnificent words in which he said that we've got nothing to hide. We don't fear the truth. And I think that that's, um, that's the motive. That's the, that's what I follow. And also the tone has to be right. I mean, in my books, I, I don't, I don't hold back. I mean, I follow President Hinckley. Let's, let's tell the truth. And President Kimball, if we don't tell it, somebody else will. And I do my very best to make sure the tone is right, that um, I'm not saying something about a, a church leader that I shouldn't say in terms of the way I express something, right? But as a historian, I have to explain this to Josh, uh, to a lot of people in the church. And that is, my, I'm, an, I'm a university professor. I don't cherry pick, I don't pull punches. That's what Desert Book does. And I, I know it sounds like I'm being a little critical of Desert Book. Um, Desert Book is a devotional. It's great. If you buy their stuff for a devotional experience, that's what it is, really, and that's fine. But as something that purports to be scholarship, Desert Book doesn't have a strong record with scholarship. But devotional literature is their niche. I do scholarship, and I publish with university presses. And so what that means is, is that my work is heavily vetted by other scholars in the field. What it means is I don't cherry pick something to make the church look good or bad. Although um, I try to follow one of the great church historians, I think is one of my heroes is a guy named Leonard Arrington. Hmm. Leonard Arrington writes, wrote magnificent history, telling the truth, but also keeping a good tone, respectful tone. And I think the other um, church historian that I emulate is Richard Bushman who's in his early 90s now, wonderful scholar. I think he carries a good tone, but doesn't hold back either. And so for Latter-day Saints who don't want to be, to learn new new scholarship because it doesn't conform to the desert book or the or to the manuals that they read at church to that version, then, you know, I'm not sure what to say because we're, we're not in the business of devotional literature. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I'm writing a biography now on Hubie Brown, and I've had the Hubie Brown family members ask me, you know, about, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to say about our, our, our loved one? And I tell them, you know, I'm going to tell the truth according to the evidence, right? But then I also say, you know, <laughs> I really, really admire him, you know? So it's Pretty, it's going to be pretty clear that I admire Hubie Brown and what he did for the church, his influence, his significance. And um, anyway, so that's a, that's a long answer to your question. But I, just be honest, be accurate, keep a good tone. And I hope people will respect that. I will tell you that uh, with this Benson book that I've written, I think this is important to note. I've had at least three general authorities contact me personally. I've had, I don't know how many institute and seminary teachers that I've had reach out to me. I don't know how many bishops and state presidents I've had reach out to me, all praising the book. 
And the reason why they praise the book is because it's telling a, a version of history that needs to be told. And they recognize that it's being told in a responsible way. And that it's, I'm utilizing the best sources possible to tell this story. And so I also had one general authority tell me, he said, this is a book that every Latter-day Saint needs to read because it's a story that they need to hear. He's obviously, I don't talk about today's politics in this book at all. I just don't. Mm -hmm. But clearly when he told me that, he was thinking about January 6th and some other things. Sure. He had in mind. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> that's, um, I think that that's what's, what I'm, I guess I'm, I'm getting at. Well, let, let me ask it this way. There's also going to be people in um, who, who hear this. And I say this again, because there were a couple people who, who heard the last one. And let me, let me put it this way. I think when it comes to your scholarship and any scholarship, really, when you're dealing with just the facts, uh, is that if you are a faithful, you know, if you want to find something faith promoting out of it, you will. If you want to find somebody antagon something antagonistic out of it, you will. Um, but there are occasionally people who are going to read this and it might shake them a little bit in what their what their thinking is. Um, do you, what, what would you say to somebody if they were to come to you and just kind of say like, hey, I don't know what to do with this information. You know, uh, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, is there any anything you would say to that person? In terms of like, what would be, I guess I'm not following you, what they're reading my book and somehow it's jolting to their belief in the church. Yeah, like, like to hear, like for example, the last one I heard when we did the, the one about the priesthood temple ban was that they just were like, this does not comport with what I've heard. And it's kind of shaking me a little bit. You know, it's kind of shaking my, I don't know if they'd say that shaking my faith, but it's like, why, how, how come I haven't heard this before? Um, you know, I've heard you say on other podcasts, I listened to a couple of them where you've said, you're like, look, this stuff shouldn't be, you know, this shouldn't be shaking any, putting anyone into a faith crisis or anything like that. Um, you know, would you say, and know that one you were talking more about the priesthood ban, the temple ban, you know, like we, we talked about it on the podcast, right? You're like, oh, you mean... You're surprised. Are you surprised that Brigham Young was racist in the 1850s? You know what I mean? Like, you know, that type of thing. Uh, and, you know, I think it's kind of the same here where you're talking about Ezra Taft Benson. You're like, you're telling me that a staunch Republican who became president of the church was also very anti-communist. Like, does that surprise you? Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of where I'm getting at is what would you say to somebody if they came to you after, you know, you gave, you gave a, a speech to or a talk to a bunch of you know, active members of the church and someone came up to you concerned? Well, th those are faith questions, right? Yeah. Um, how does my work affect faith? Usually I don't deal with those kinds of questions because I'm in academic audiences, but I do speak to a lot of Latter-day Saint groups all the time. Uh -huh. And sometimes these questions come up. And what I say is, of course, that your faith in the church is not vested in Ezra Taft Benson or any other church leader, right? Sure. So that's the first point I make. And the second point I would say is that, you know, we're taught by church leaders in the church frequently that leaders aren't perfect. Well, this is an, this is an example. And I don't, I don't sugarcoat. I don't, it doesn't serve the church to sugarcoat. And so, um, yes, Elder T Benson's an anti-communist, but he believes in conspiracy theories. I mean, this is really tough to grasp. And this is maybe for some people, it might be hard to hear that, that a, an apostle 
believes in some really outlandish theories, right? I mean, think about this just for a moment, that the government is creating a program in the early 1960s to fluoridate water to keep our teeth healthy. But somehow that morphs into a government plot to subvert public health. That's a crazy idea. That's a Birch idea. And Elder Benson tries to get senior leaders to buy off on it, writes um, Henry Eyring, President Eyring's father, the great chemist at the University of Utah, writes him a series of letters trying to get him on board with anti-fluoridation. You know, and Henry Eyring is like, oh, sorry, I believe in science. Mm. But what do you what do you do with this stuff? Well, it's Elder Benson. He's an individual. And I think President McKay said it best. He told Elder Brown, President Brown, his counselor, he said, you may not like Elder Benson's views, but he has a right to speak them. And so he spoke them and some people agreed with them and some people didn't. But I can't imagine that hopefully that that wouldn't affect anybody's belief system. I think that if President Benson, I might feel differently if President Benson were giving the same sermons in the 1980s and into the 90s when he was the church president as he did in the 60s. I think that would be problematic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. As the church prophet, the church president talking about all these conspiracy views, which he didn't do, as I mentioned earlier. But, you know, if, if people have issues with at least my scholarship, I think, and probably some others that I can think of, then probably they have other issues with the church, right? Mm -hmm. What I found is, Josh, that people who, they look for excuses sometimes to give them a reason to leave the church. Mm. I've had people call me, and again, I don't deal with faith questions. I'm a scholar. I'm not a CES teacher um, or a clergyman, but I've had people call me and they're just grilling me about the church and they, they're hoping I'll say something, you know, full of dirt or something. And I know what they're doing. They're trying to play me. They, they want evidence from me to confirm some bias or thought that they have to give them ammunition to leave the church. Sure. And I, you know, they're disappointed when they talk to me because I cut them off at the knees. I'm like, I, I don't do that. Yeah. I'm not in, I, I just don't do that. That's not what I do. And I'm going to disappoint you. It sounds like you have some issues with the church and I, I really can't help you because you're looking for something from me to get you to leave. And I, I don't do that. Okay. That's just not what I'm about. So, you know, I think that I also think that people in the church, um, I'm going to be critical for a moment, so forgive me, but to your, some of your listeners maybe, but uh, people in the church are too parochial in their reading. I mean, so many people in my family and other people I know, they'll just read Desert Book and that's it. Mm. You got to read outside of Desert Book. There is some wonderful literature that's being done um, it's, it's by, by LDS historians and even non-LDS historians. There's a book on the Mountain Meadows Massacre that will be published in the next few weeks mm. by the former church historian uh, named Rick Turley and his assistant or his associate, Barbara Brown, or his co-author. Rick Turley was, he traveled with President Nelson for a long time on place. He was also head of PR, too. He was church historian, then he morphed over into PR, and he became President Nelson's travel companion. Mm. And anyway, I just I just had dinner with them a couple, not very long ago, last month, I guess. We were at a conference and we had dinner together and a few other scholars. Anyway, Rick Turley is about as close to the core as you get. Mm -hmm. And he's written a big book with his co-author that, that a big university press will publish next month. 
it is not going to be faith promoting. I'll tell you that right now. I've heard him talk about it. Mm. Now it's not damaging to the church. I don't think. Right. But it's not. It's not the desert book faith promoting history that Elder Benson and Elder Peterson and Elder Packer counseled the saints to write. I don't know how you would write a faith promoting account of the Mountain Meadows massacre, one of the most gruesome domestic terrorist or accounts in the history of this country, one of the biggest black eyes on the church ever. Mm-hmm. You can't turn that into something that's faith promoting. It's not. It's grim. And but yet, hearing uh, Rick Turley and and Barbara, his co-author, talk about it. I mean, they're very respectful, of course, of the church, of the institution. They're, of course, very sympathetic to the casualties that day. They're just telling a story. Mm-hmm. And it's a grim story. So I think I would say to Latter-day Saints, not just your listeners, but others in general, that don't be afraid of the truth. Reach out and read things about the church beyond Desert Book, beyond the church manuals. And I dare say that it will actually strengthen your faith because the more you know, hopefully the more firm in your convictions you'll be. I don't think ignorance has ever been a blessing to anybody. No, I I agree. And, And quite frankly, I mean, I have found a lot of this stuff. It's it's may sound a little counterintuitive to some people, but I have found it rather faith promoting because um, I'll liken it I'll liken it to an experience I had in my first trial as an attorney. So my first trial as an attorney, I I mean I started I've had one job I've worked at one firm my entire career in law school. I got lucky enough to be placed into a. a a law clerk position with one of the best his name's roger dreyer one of the best personal injury trial attorneys in the world and i clerked for him for three years i, re- I summarized all of his depositions i i recorded all of his depositions uh and so i remember walking in there and and coming out of the bar thinking i'm like i have no idea how i'm going to be able to do this because he's so great right he's so great and then we went to i went to my first trial as second chair with him and i saw the defense attorney and i was like oh man this guy is terrible right and i and i look at roger and i say what would you grade him he said he's probably like a b and i go are you serious he goes yeah like he's what you usually would see from a defense attorney and i realized i was like I've been holding these guys up at, you know, because I've seen Roger. He's so, he's so amazing. I just assumed everybody was that amazing. Right. And I think it's the same way in the church is that until you pull back the curtain a little bit and see that they're human, you kind of hold them way up here and, and they should be up there because they are amazing people that, you know, if you are a faithful member of the church, you do believe that they are prophets and apostles, seers and revelators, all that stuff. It doesn't mean they're not human with imperfections, just like everybody else. So when I see these things and I see Ezra Taft Benson struggling with this issue, I like that's one of the things I noticed in, in what you're saying is struggling with the issue of a prophet gave me a blessing. <laughs> and this is what it said. And now I'm with another prophet who's reining me in. But this is this was my calling. I was called to push the American ideals. What am I supposed to do? And seeing him wrestle with that, it gives me kind of hope because there's lots of rank and file members 
dealing with that exact same thing. My grant, my patriarchal blessing says this. What am I supposed to do? You know what I mean? It, and so I, I would say that you, you could, you're right. Like if you're looking for something to, to convince yourself that the church isn't true, you can find it. It's not far hard. You buy that Meadow Mountain Massacre book, and I'm sure you'll be well on your way, right? Or you can look at it through the eye of just like you look at the Bible and you look at King David, or you look at you know Moses not being able to go into the promised land, or Judas Iscariot, who sat there and saw every, every one of those miracles you hear in the Bible, saw them all, and gave away the Savior for 30 pieces of silver, right? So, you know, you can take it for what you what you will. Um, to wrap up real quick, uh, you know, it, I don't know if it'll be real quick because it's a, kind of a broad question, but I want to ask you. So what's the fallout now? I mean, what are we seeing? Like, what do you think this book, you wrote it for a reason. You wanted to highlight right wing extremism within the church. Tell me why you thought this needed specifically to be said and what you want people to see. Well, again, I'm a scholar, and so I've got a professional and a personal interest in this topic. The personal, you know, I noted earlier about my family, about my connection to him growing up in my home, about him being the prophet who signed my missionary papers. And so uh, I also should say, too, when I was a student at BYU in the early 90s, I read one of Michael Quinn's articles in the library and I was just amazed at the sources that he was able to get on Elder Benson, who was alive at the time, or President Benson at that point. So President Benson was still the church president when Mike Quinn wrote this path-breaking article. And I read it at the BYU Library, and I was just amazed. I knew there was a story there that hadn't been told. So anyway, that was part of my connection. And then my professional connection, of course, is recognizing that he was an influential church leader because of his political views. But also he was an influential secular leader. I mean, this is a man who was positioned to run for the U.S. presidency twice in the 1960s. This is a guy who was good friends with four American presidents. He was, he was close friends with Barry Goldwater, the most influential uh, senator in the 1960s. He knew Ronald Reagan, Reagan really well. George W. Bush, uh, Papa Bush, as I call him affectionately, when he was president in 1989, gave President Benson the um, one of the high, what was the name of the medal? One of the highest uh, civilian government medals that the government bestows. I mean, so this is not a small guy, right? So I wanted to look at Benson's views politically, not just how did he influence, you know, Latter-day Saints, but also how did he influence just Americans in general. And I teach political history at my university. So part of this is, you know, driven by that. I also was curious about outreach that Elder Benson had with other leaders, ministers of communism. And some of the biggest uh, anti-communist leaders of the 50s and 60s were ministers. Hmm. And I was shocked, frankly, that Benson is underappreciated in his contribution to speaking at the, on the anti-communism circuit. I mentioned earlier that he spoke on at least four occasions with Billy James Hargis, but he spoke with um, a German-Australian doctor who re relocated to the United States, a guy named, excuse me, a guy named Fred Schwartz. Mm -hmm. Dr. Schwartz was, was one of the leader, leading anti-communist um, speakers in the United States. Elder Benson was so taken in by Dr. Schwartz that he had him 
flown into Salt Lake to meet President McKay and President and Elder Benson wanted Dr. Schwartz to speak in conference, general conference. Hmm. So if you're keeping score at home, Elder Benson tried to get Cleon or uh, Robert Welch to speak in general conference, J. Edgar Hoover and Fred Schwartz. And President Benson recognized that, you know, this is controversial because not everybody shares these hard views. Sure. And so he turned him down. He said, no, we're not going to do that. But anyway, um, so that's why I got involved in Benson is is that he's such an, a significant person politically and religiously in the church. And and I think that, um, you know, there's two there's been two biographies written about him. One was by Sherry Dew. It came out in 1987. And oddly enough, I don't think that that's a bad book at all. I think it's pretty detailed. I think it's well written. It I'm not going to fault Sherry Dew for omitting the Birch stuff if the story I told you earlier is true, if she was counseled. Because I'm, I'm certain that she would have talked about the Birch stuff if it wasn't for that counsel. Sure. Um, but anyway, those are those are faith promoting biographies. And that's just not what scholars do. We don't write faith promoting books because we would never get promoted with tenure if we wrote a faith promoting book for our church members. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's the reason why um, when we write university books, it it gets um, what I do. I'll, I'll speak for myself personally, is that I usually always have some of my Latter Day Saint friends read my stuff, like Patrick Mason you mentioned earlier. He's a great reader, and he read this book and he endorsed it. In fact. And I'll, so I'll have Latter-day Saint scholars like Patrick and others read my stuff. Matt Bowman of Claremont will always read my stuff. Paul Reeve reads my stuff. And then I've got stuff, people outside of the church who read it. These are, these are scholars who aren't Latter-day Saints. And some of them are not even in Mormon studies, actually. They're just smart people who have an interest in my topic. So anyway, um, and that kind of creates a balance between, you know, sort of an inside perspective from a Latter-day Saint scholar and an outside perspective. Mm. But at Desert Book or a place of devotion like that, they don't do a peer review process like this. They just do inside vetting. Mm. And so I, I wanted to ask you real quick, I just remembered this and I, I wrote it down as something I wanted to ask you about because one of the most famous stories about Ezra Taft Benson is the story about him speaking with Nikita Khrushchev and in the you know he seems to suggest that khrushchev said that that communists would be feeding socialism to us until until we wake up and realize we have communism and i hear this from anybody ever who's ever been who's ever like a hardcore right uh anti-communist uh guy and there's been it's been called into question over the last you know decade or so that i've heard of it uh whether it even happened, do you um, have you seen anything in your in your uh, vast sources that suggest that it was not a real conversation versus it was a real conversation? Anything of that nature? Yeah, I'm going to answer your question by turning and getting a book off my shelf real quick. Ah, so because I'm a glutton for punishment, I've done two books on Ezra Taft Benson. <laughs> so there's that one, and am I getting this one over? Okay, that one. Yeah. So the difference between the two. This one is a, is just a traditional book I'm looking at. It's not a biography, by the way. I want to be very clear on this. This is not a biography. 
it's a look about how Elder Benson's political views evolved from being a moderate to, as we talked about, to more of an extremist position. And then the latter third of the book looks at how he influenced the church's rightward tilt. Mm -hmm. So it's not a biography. I'm not going to go on to pages. I talk about his family, of course, but it's, again, not a traditional biography. This book here is a collection of essays that I edited from a variety of different scholars, some of them at BYU Provo, BYU Idaho, um, scholars on the East Coast, really a whole bunch of different University of Utah. And a scholar named Gary Bergera wrote about Nikita Khrushchev and that encounter that Benson uh, allegedly had. And Bergera says that there's absolutely zero evidence that that happened. Hmm. And I would, if your readers are interested in that, they would want to get a hold of Bergera's uh, essay in this vo edited volume that I did. Um, anyway, so that's, you know, there's just, the only evidence we have is what Benson talked about it, but Bergera walks you through the evidence and just says that the timing's not right. It, it just didn't happen. Hmm. But I will say that in 1959, though, um, Benson did go to, the Soviet Union, and he was he was moved by that experience. He went into a Christian church, and which is interesting, you know, Mormon apostle in a Christian church. It was like a Christian Orthodox church, but he was so moved by meeting these fellow Christians in this church, because keep in mind that communism and Christianity do not mix, right? I mean, communism is it, it really is a it's a godless belief system. It's just, there's no room for God in communism. I mean, religion is an opiate of the masses. It's a drug. It's a pharmacon, as Karl Marx taught. So Benson was moved by some of the expressions of these Christians and how communism was stifling their ability to believe in Christ and other things. And so he frequently told about his experience this this Russian Christian church throughout his life. And on at least four or five occasions, he told the Nikita Khrushchev thing. Mm -hmm. And my, my, my opinion on that is, is that it was something that was akin to, you know, Gadiat and robbers. It was just, it was a way to bolster his message by appealing to authority. Hmm. Yeah. I was wondering if anyone had ever asked Khrushchev about it, uh, if it happened or not. And so, but I, I haven't heard anything one way or the other. It's a very, it's a very, um, it's a very brash and arrogant thing to say. If, if if Khrushchev said it, um, but you gotta, you know, it's it's maybe this is my own bias, you know. Like I've heard people say zero evidence, and my the lawyer in me is like, well, there's not zero evidence. Ezra Tapp Benson said it happened. That's evidence, right? I mean, it's just not, it's not docu, it's it's not documented evidence, but it's you know testimonial. But yeah, that just seems like such a brash thing to say to another government leader who's opposing your <laughs> your whole way of living. So it just seems so. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's kind of a, I mean, political people say that they, they wax hyperbolic all the time, right? I mean, it's, it's possible that he said it. I, I don't think he said it. It's doubtful. And knowing what I know about Benson and his way that he would embellish some of his ways to to reaffirm his political positions, I mean, that's possible. But I would say, though, that if you look at communism in the 1950s and 60s, the Russians are not trying to take over the world. That's not even possible. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. The Russians are trying to control their borders. They want to control Eastern Europe. That's why the Cold War really takes off from Eastern Europe. It's because it's all about those borders. 
Sure. Eastern Europe to Russia is what Canada and the United or Canada and Mexico is to the United States, right? You want to you want to have friendly relations with your borders. Sure. And the United States, of course, and the Brits did not, and the French did not want Eastern Europe to be communist. But yet, of course, the Russians did because they had been invaded through since the 19th century. They had fought wars that started through someone's incursion into Russia through Eastern Europe. So if they could create an iron wall in Eastern Europe, that would protect the motherland better. Mm. So Nikita Khrushchev, you know, <laughs> pledging to bring communism to the world. I mean, you know, that's a little bit of a stretch. Yeah. Interesting. Well, well, awesome. Well, I really appreciate you. We've been going almost three hours now and I appreciate you <laughs> indulging me on a, it doesn't seem like it. You know, we fly through. I look at the time and I'm like, oh, man, we've already gone an hour. I have so much more to talk about. But I, I really appreciate you indulging me on this topic. And um, uh, so you have your next book. I know we talked about it last time you were on. Your next book on uh, the, the Priesthood Temple Band comes out next year. Is it? Does it have a date yet? No, unfortunately, it doesn't have a date or a title yet. The, uh, the editor didn't quite like the title that I had initially. And uh, it was called The Long Awaited Day. Hmm. And it's about the priest in Temple Band. And for whatever reason, editors have opinions and he didn't like it. So that's fine. So, but it'll have a title pretty soon. And hopefully in the next month or two, I'll have a release date. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be the spring of 24. Wow. And how many pages is that one? It's got an introduction, 10 lengthy beefy chapters and then an epilogue so it's probably 450 pages maybe wow wow it's a very detailed look about civil rights about byu and race about uh president kimball how he lifts the temple ban and also about after the what the church and race looks like after the ban is lifted because the priesthood revelation when it was announced through this letter called official declaration number two it doesn't say anything about the theology that the saints had once used to undergird the ban. Right. And so with that theology not repudiated, Latter-day Saints, well-intentioned Latter-day Saints, continue to teach it. And of course, Black Latter-day Saints find it offensive and they push back. And the brethren hear this. And so it results in a path-breaking essay that the church posts on its webpage called The Race and the Priesthood. This is 2013. Yeah. And that's the first time the church will repudiate the curse of Cain, the less valiance, interracial marriage stuff. So, yeah. well, that's interesting. Well, I appreciate you indulging me. Uh, it's it's always great to have you. We'll have to have you back when the when the next book comes out. We'll talk about it, and and I'm sure I'll go through it, and I'll just have so many questions. I'm like, <laughs> all right, Doctor Harris, come on back and teach me more. So I really appreciate it. And uh, anybody, uh, you know, who's, who's made it through three hours of us talking, uh, subscribe. Uh, we got a, we have some very interesting ones coming up that are completely different than this. So it'll be really fun. Uh, but uh, thanks for coming on. And uh, we will we'll definitely keep in touch. So thanks, Josh.